What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of the Chris and Paul Show, the number one hypertrophy physiology uh, training to paleolithic existential failure podcast on the entire internet. As always, I welcome my partner, friend, colleague, Chris Beardsley. Chris, how are you doing today over there in the cold, buddy? I'm doing well, thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Today, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to do a... I put up a Q&A box. We had talked about this like a week ago, and I said, if we don't have like a topic that's kind of raging across social media, let's just, I'll just put up a Q&A box and we'll just grab some random questions from the Q&A box. And the only thing that has really been, I've gotten hit a lot with this, this let the last week or so as I posted about yesterday. And that was that Raphael hypertrophy study where they did one to two RIR versus failure. And then I got sent the study by a bunch of people and I looked at it for three minutes. Some go, this doesn't tell us anything. I thought the, the fatigue, the velocity loss fatigue aspect was interesting. But other than that, I didn't, there was nothing in the study I found interesting. So I didn't feel like we should do a whole, a whole podcast episode on a study that didn't tell us anything. High level overview in it. Anytime you get over 10, 12, 13 sets a week for a muscle group, really doesn't matter so much if you're training one, one to two RIR or two failure. I think things are going to equal out over the course of eight weeks or 10 weeks of hypertrophy training if you're doing that much volume. Anything over 10 sets a week, I think, if you're doing one to two RIR, you're probably going to land in pretty similar areas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, even in the volume literature, it's not a consistent finding. Mean, if you pick up a random volume study, you're not automatically going to see differences between one set and three sets. So if you're not seeing differences automatically between one set and three sets, why would you see differences between one set to failure and, and leaving a one or two reps in reserve? I mean, the differences just isn't, you know, the differences aren't big enough for you to actually detect um, you know, uh, any meaningful changes so or differences between groups rather. So ultimately, you know, as you say, when you start to stack up a large number of sets per week, the difference is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller because every additional set is counting for less. And so ultimately, the difference is going to be vanishingly, vanishingly small between groups. Does that mean that there won't be any difference whatsoever over a six or 12 month period? Well, maybe then you would see a difference ultimately. But what we have to remember is that the person who is training to one or two reps in reserve could probably add an additional set if they wanted to or actually train more frequently. So ultimately, everything is being compared in very, obviously very strict way in literature and uh, in, in research literature. But that doesn't mean that we would then automatically see a negative effect of training with one or two reps in reserve if we were adopting that as a, as a strategy, because there's actually advantages of doing it that way, as you were just saying regarding the fatigue being greater. So I think the other thing that people do not understand about when they do these studies is most of them run eight weeks or so and 10 weeks or so. And depending on what uh, what metric that we're measuring, it could be that these are just often not long enough to give us a kind of better idea sometimes of what's going on. Because as you look at the velocity loss, as this, even just over eight weeks, the set that the group that's training one to two RIR they start to catch up. If you look at the velocity loss based percentages, they're starting to catch up. At first, uh, the group that's going to failure, 
they have significantly greater degrees of velocity loss during the training session. But then as the they did them measurements at one week one, week four, week eight. By the time they get to week eight, you can see that fatigue starting to creep in, even on the one to two RIR assist. Now, what I think is the reason there is that the volume is just too damn high. And I've said this forever. If I think they were upwards of 13 to 15 sets by the time they got to the end because they incrementally increased the volume. And I just don't think anybody needs that much volume in a week. Um, and I think if some of these studies went on for longer, then we were doing things like checking creatine kinase levels to look for markers for muscle damage. And we we're doing um, something to test central nervous system fatigue on off days where we could say, you know, well, how much are we seeing a reduction in explosive movements where we have to recruit high threshold motor units and after setting a baseline? We kind of talked about this in the preliminary part of the the podcast there's we need if we're going to do a study we can do any study it's all about what we're going to measure through the study really so you can almost set up the design for hypertrophy just pick some you know three sets of 10 you know with whatever rest period versus three sets of five whatever rest period but then do a lot of measurements on different variables uh, that we're going to look at and that really gives us a bigger a bigger picture of kind of what's going on and then run the study for longer, say 12 weeks or something like that. If you can run it that rather than say six or eight. So this led to a lot of questions in my Q and a box. For example, one guy asked could do one to two, um, uh, reps and reserve sets really are as effective as training to failure. If yes, then half of people are just creating more fatigue for, for, uh, for nothing. And I would say that's, pretty close to being true um i think that it's a it's a slightly more nuanced conversation than people realize you and i kind of have landed in the same spot as far as what we feel like is effective approaches and by effective i mean we're keeping fatigue at minimum at minimum as much as possible throughout the training session and then as little as possible in the subsequent sessions and to me, that ended up landing me at really heavier loading, four to five reps in a set with a, right around one RIR. I feel like two RIR, even for myself, I can gauge my failure, um, is a little further away than I just want to be. But one RIR, I know where that is every single time. And I have seen, like my pressing stuff has just, it doesn't seem like much, but you do not realize, and that's what I did find interesting about this study. When you're taking every single set in your workout to failure, the amount of fatigue you do not realize that you have is so substantial because as soon as you back off to just one RIR, you will have an enormous progressive overload run up over the following weeks. And I've done this with my groups and everybody has seen it too. Like it's a real thing. The amount of fatigue that occurs that's kind of why like this whole thing you had to, you had a great post the other day when your infographics was just after a few sets there's a 20 percent reduction in motor unit recruitment so anyone who's out there thinking i'm just paddling all this volume and i you know like that's the way to go there's just nothing in the physiology that substantiates that yeah there's a couple of those studies uh they're really cool i think a lot of people think that the changes in motor unit recruitment due to cns fatigue are quite small i mean i often talk to people and they say oh well you know it's like what a couple of percent i'm like well no it's a lot more than that <laughs> and it really does make a huge difference when you start to chop off the access to those high threshold motor units so, well that's where all the growth is coming from so if you're 
looking at the dose response of hypertrophy to strength training volume and you're wondering why it takes six sets to double the hypertrophy in one set well there's the answer it's because a lot of the later sets you're just not able to create the level of recruitment that you need to in order to create the hypertrophy that you're trying to stimulate so the hypertrophy is predominantly coming from your early sets in a workout so why do the later ones <laughs> it makes a lot of, doesn't make a lot of sense really which also leads us into a conversation, and this one has come up this this week, and we haven't really touched on it. I hate to get out, give out a number ever for anything anymore, because even if you just remotely hint at a number, they people that either listen to the podcast or read your content, they will latch onto that number as gospel. But that the the discussion about all of this leads me into kind of moving things around. Is that even if you're changing muscle groups, somebody kind of asked that in one of the questions is even if you're changing muscle groups, you're still, let's say you're training two muscle groups. So you do full body workouts over the, you do train the whole body. That was literally an argument I had this week. Somebody thought a, a full body workout meant you had to do an exercise for every single muscle group. That was the most ridiculous thing question I had in a while. I'm like, no, full body training means you just train the whole body, which means if you do a press, everything that got trained in the press, you got trained in the press. If you do a pull, everything got trained in the pull. Now, how you want to allocate that volume, you know, is that's a different conversation. But if you do, if you do a chest press and you do a pull up or you do a row uh, along with a leg extension, leg curl, you train the full body. Like that's essentially. Yeah, kind I mean, of- when we last talked about this, we mentioned how maintenance is a really important concept here. Mm-hmm. So if if I'm selecting a particular press and I identify that that press has a bias towards anterior delt, then I'm like, well, okay, sure, that's great. That's what I'm training with that press. And that's what I'm counting as my kind of target. Um, I mean, I don't tend to think in terms of target volumes. I tend to think in terms of progressive overload. I mean, I don't really care. Ultimately, I don't really care how much volume <laughs> is done if if the weight carries on increasing and the reps carry, uh, per set carry on increasing. I'm like, well, if I do that with fewer fewer sets that's actually a good thing um so i think people are thinking things the wrong way around ultimately it's about progress not about how many sets you do per week but um the maintenance is still there for the triceps and the pecs it's like well great okay so i now i've now got another 48 hours before i have to worry about that uh, or those muscle groups needing another stimulus so i think ultimately just the maintenance is a key part of that whole equation yeah, that was also my thought is, as you said, even if you're doing an overhead press, all depending on how you set up, it, it's not like you can get away and not have any of the pec fibers um, that, that like the clavicular pec is going to be involved, especially depending on the degree of, of, uh, of humeral um, elevation that you're going to kind of take the range of motion through. In fact, a lot of times these guys will talk about, they'll go through a sagittal plane press and they'll start from. <clears throat> almost like the anatomical position and then press. And I'm like, well, you're really training the pecs. That's a kind of a pec biased press. And then they call it shoulders. Not, and here's the thing though, not saying the shoulders don't get any stimulus there. They do. But the point is what's essentially, what are we asking to do the most work based on neuromechanical matching? And that's the thing that they don't often look at. But the, the question was, and I was trying to find it, and it was, if we have fatigue, if we incur fatigue as the workout goes on, which we do, then what would be the point in even training two muscle groups in the same workout? 
So basically, that so that you don't have to do twelve workouts a week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think ultimately there's 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 putting physiology to work by making it you know kind of work for you by giving answers to important questions that help us understand how to program. But ultimately, we also have to be practical. And I'm not going to walk to the gym 12 times a week. I'm going right. to go three times because that's it. That's that's the time allocated in my schedule to do that. Now, other people may have four or five or whatever. It doesn't matter. We start from what we want to put in in terms of our time, energy allocation. And then we go, okay, based on that limitation, what will I then do in terms of the physiology to what will I use in terms of physiology information to write a really good program? Well, I think sometimes people kind of switch their brains off when they're asking these kind of questions because it's like, well, you know, clearly I'm not going to do 12 workouts a week. Yeah, and, and that was the thing. I mean, there's still some different levels of fatigue that we're, we're dealing with here from we have it's kind of like doing alternating sets when we had this conversation before when you're doing alternating sets for biceps and triceps you're you're reducing the spinal level fatigue that you're dealing with because you have different innervations by different muscles um even though the the the, the super spinal fatigue is going to exist within the workout you're you're dealing instead of dealing with two levels of central nervous system fatigue you've kind of narrowed that down to one and then if you're doing unilateral movements um you can get a little bit higher degree of motor unit recruitment. So somebody had asked me that and I was trying to kind of explain because they said, well, do unilateral movements cause more fatigue? That was a decent question. Do unilateral movements cause more fatigue because you have to do more sets in order to balance things out? And I said, if I say yes, then somebody's going to go back and misquote me and say, Paul said unilateral movements cause more fatigue. The more sets you do, the more fatigue you'll accumulate within the training session. Um, however, unilateral movements also mean we're getting a higher degree of recruitment, motor unit recruitment for the side that we're training. So I, I don't say that it balances out, but it is a slightly more nuanced conversation than just saying we're, I'm doing a bilateral exercise for X number of sets. And then we know there's going to be a drop off uh, in motor unit recruitment due to a certain amount of fatigue that will be accumulated over doing X amount of sets. If you're doing unilateral movements, I'm getting a higher degree of motor unit recruitment, especially now we're considering that they're stable, right? I'm not doing, you know, a Bulgarian split squat, squat on a BOSU ball. So we're assuming it's a, a one-legged leg press and we're doing a right leg and a left leg if we're doing five or six reps we're mitigating the amount of fatigue that's happening within those sets if we were leaving one or two rir like they just did in the Raphael study we would actually be doing some things that kind of reduce the amount of fatigue that's going on from each set to each set and we're kind of getting that little uptick in motor unit recruitment because these are unilateral stable movements so when i told the person it was a little more of a nuanced conversation it is it is. And also, it depends when you're taking your fatigue measurement, because ultimately what you're going to see, leg press is a great example. Um, let's say we're doing a two-leg leg press. Generally speaking, most people are going to get a pretty strong cardiovascular response from that. Mm -hmm. As a result, they're going to have a ton of supraspinal fatigue that carries over until that cardiovascular response dies down again. Now, if you then compare that with a single leg leg press, you're not going to get anywhere near the level of cardiovascular response. So you're not going to get anywhere near the level of supraspinal fatigue because that's dependent on the feeling that you're experiencing from the cardiovascular system. So 
And just to be clear, I'm not talking about cardiovascular fatigue. I'm talking about the supraspinal response to the feeling of cardiovascular activity, which is what we're interested in as far as recruitment is concerned. So you're getting less fatigue uh, from set to set in your single leg exercise because you're not creating the cardiovascular response. But because you're achieving a higher level of recruitment, you are actually going to activate more fast twitch fibers and therefore your post-workout fatigue is likely to be greater. So this is really, really interesting because it depends on when you're taking your measurement. In the workout itself, you're actually going to get a little bit less fatigue as a result of doing the unilateral uh, as regards set to set. In case of post-workout fatigue, I would expect the fatigue to be greater in the case of the unilateral exercise because of the higher recruitment. And that just comes with a cost because you're activating more fast twitch fibers for longer periods of time. Yeah, that's why I told him, I was like, it, it's actually a little bit of a nuanced conversation. And you can't just say, sometimes when people ask these questions, there's, I know they're looking for like a, a very simple spoon fed answer. And I'm like, they are. I mean, clearly, sometimes. Pretty much all the time. Like 99.9% .9 of the time. <laughs> or they just use, they do a word salad where they misuse all of the words in the in the wrong way. But um, that's actually, I thought it was a decent question because there's a multitude of nuances that go into, well, if I'm really trying to mitigate fatigue, let's say this guy asking was very advanced, for example, that would be a good question for a very advanced guy to ask, right? Really, really good question. So he's like, well, if I do unilateral movements, are they causing me more fatigue because I'm having to do more sets? And I'm like, well, what's the loading that you're using? What's the rep range? What's the exercise? I wouldn't think too much about doing, say, um, like a, a one arm push down for say five or six reps. And then I take a, you know, two minute rest and I do the, the, the left arm, you know, for five or six reps or here is a knee here. Cause we can always take these in a multitude of directions. Say I rest two minutes and I do a one arm bicep curl. And then I do the left side, unilaterally, you know, and I'm getting, you know, say 90 seconds to two minutes between each one. What I mean is that conversation can go in a lot of different directions, depending on what we're talking about. Are we talking about a, a single leg leg press? Like you talked about, compared to, say, a bilateral leg press. So it's actually a very good question that has a lot of complexities that can be involved in it if we're talking about that whole, quote-unquote, stimulus-to-fatigue ratio. Um, so I actually thought that was a very, very interesting question um, that had a lot more complexities than he realized when he asked that one. So I thought that was a pretty good one. Okay, so we some other ones that we had was... We have one that you really wanted to tackle, and that is, um, do we actually have, as I start to speak this question out, it does grind my gears a bit too. It really, it really, it grounds your gears pretty hard. Um, and the more that I think about it, the more it grinds my gears too. It did grind my gears a bit at the time, but it does more now. The question is, do we actually, do, do we have enough research to even create a hypertrophy physiological model so i'm gonna let you roll with this one because you're the one that has basically spent the last decade um pouring over some of the most like ridiculous nuanced stuff ever to, to start piecing together you know, what looks like the model that we talk about all the time now. And then the question is, do we even, do we even have enough research to create a model? 
Is that is that why that you sent me that thing the other day about Titan in 1979? Is that part of it? <laughs> I was actually looking for something completely different when I found that. Um, it was <laughs> it was really interesting because I'd never actually pulled up, and it was just a tiny little excerpt of a of a research. Um, report i mean it's not even a full uh, kind of study or anything it's literally like four paragraphs um it was just really interesting to see the history i kind of been digging into a little bit more of the history recently i, I found something really cool back in 1972 which i was interested in regarding muscle damage and its uh, relationship with the hypertrophy models that have been put forward previously i just found a couple of uh, interesting bits and pieces here and there but i wasn't actually looking for anything um the, the, the thing that I think is interesting about this question, do we have enough data to build a, a hypertrophy model? Well, firstly, I would say that I wasn't, I, I didn't start it. So I'm, I'm not the person who actually built a hypertrophy model first. I think arguably you could say that Brad Schoenfeld did that um, when he presented the three-part model of mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage back in 2010, something like that. Mm-hmm. So arguably I'm not the first. And so I'm kind of just sort of saying, well, I've just done a second one, which is different. I brought that up during the discussion, actually. And so ultimately, I think, first of all, I would I would indicate that other people have done it. Um, so, you know, straight away, it's like, well, clearly, you know, there are other people who think there are enough, there's enough data to build a model. Um, and then secondly, I would argue that um, any time you extrapolate between two data points, you're actually building your own model. So if you are saying that um, training volume has a dose response and uh, two sets produce more hypertrophy than one set, well, can you actually show me a study that shows that two sets produce more hypertrophy than one set? I don't think you can. So what you're doing is you're taking studies that have a dose response, say, from one to three or one to five. You're drawing a line between some points, and then you're saying, well, uh, we're going to argue that that model exists based on the uh, lines that we're drawing between points. Because ultimately, that's what a model is. Uh-huh. Um, the fact that we're presenting a physiological explanation for why those things happen is just deepening the model, enhancing the model, building it out, and providing mechanistic explanations. It's not actually any different. Um, the only real fundamental difference is that a model that just draws a line between two points and doesn't have a mechanistic explanation is weak, whereas a model that has you know, more lines going in different directions and mechanistic explanations for all of those is actually very strong. So I would say that people who are saying that there's there's not enough data to make a model, I would say, well, does that mean that every time you write a strength training program, which is based on research, you're literally picking up a strength training program that somebody else has written and done in a research article? Because if you're changing it in any way, shape or form, you're actually assuming that you know how to do that. And to assume you know how to do that requires a model of some sort. You are making assumptions. You are uh, uh, basically um, believing that you can manipulate those variables in a way that is understandable. And ultimately, that means that everybody is using a model all of the time. It's just that some models are better uh, able to predict training variables and as in they have better predictive capacity and they have more overt assumptions that people can look at and test. Ultimately, the model we're describing is very easy to describe, very easy to test, and it only contains two moving parts, which is mechanical tension and motor unit recruitment. That's literally the entirety of the model. Every single We did the podcast recently where we basically went through a whole load of training variables and I said, Motor unit recruitment and mechanical tension will explain pretty much every finding. It really that you are, does. We, we are going to look we at. Did, we did the one, and it was really pretty interesting how 
it just all circles back into just a very just understanding a few concepts. Now I'm not saying it can't get wild from there on out. What I'm saying is when we're just talking about hypertrophy, when you look at motor unit recruitment and you look at the force velocity relationship and you ask yourself what has the best um the best internal leverage to do the work here you can really kind of just get back to a few concepts to understand what should the, the, the outcomes look like. So when we talk about building a hypertrophy model, there's not like, I think that was the thing about a decade ago or 20 years ago, however long when people started trying to piece together these physiological pieces to create, as you said, a model is they thought all of this stuff was so multifaceted. Um, that was, that was a question since we even though we've covered, covered metabolic stress is so somehow magically metabolic stress makes up for that the um the deficit the mechanical tension so you have growth from mechanical tension and then if you do higher reps there's less mechanical tension but metabolic stress is making up for the deficit of mechanical tension that was essentially the model right that was essentially trying to explain away how higher reps but then if you just get back to motor unit recruitment and the force velocity relationship it's very it's very cleanly explained and then you had to be able to, this is a part I feel like is lost on so many people. If you're going to prove that something causes muscle growth, you need to be able to prove that it does that in the absence of other physiological issues. What are you smiling about right there? That's how it has to be done, Chris. It can't be, if you, if I take away mechanical tension, prove to me that that is causing muscle growth. Okay. So then let's do all sorts of stuff to, we'll inject people with lactate or we'll like do BFR bands to increase, you know, metabolite accumulation, or we'll do all of these things. That stuff has to kick off muscle growth in the absence of mechanical tension for you to prove to me that, that it's not mechanical tension. It has to do it in the absence of mechanical tension. That's the only way it can be proven. Which is exactly the same reason why when, we were looking at muscle damage and I said, you've got to look at muscle damage in the absence of muscular contractions. Yep. That's why you've got to look at compression induced damage. That's why you've got to look at damage caused by other um, kind of mechanisms rather than muscular contractions. And everyone freaked out and they said, well, no, 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 you can't do that because the damage is different. I'm like, do you think so? Because the literature says it's not. The literature the, says it's the literature exactly the same. The literature says the damage is actually the same. <laughs> Because it's all caused by calcium ion accumulation. So yep. ultimately, it was, and I think that's a really interesting trend because I just want to circle back very quickly to something that you you said when we were talking about the um, the model. I said stimulating reps, which is the model that we're describing. Basically, any stimulating rep is a rep that has a high level of recruitment and a high level of mechanical tension. That's it. That's the model. That that's literally it. what I've just said is the entirety of everything that I have actually contributed to um, hypertrophy science. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, all of the other stuff is just applied physiology underneath that model because neuromechanical matching has got nothing to do with me. All I've done is describe how it works in the context of this hypertrophy model. Neuromechanical matching is something that's completely well described outside the scope of, of the hypertrophy literature, and it's very, very commonly discussed in motor learning and various other areas. But ultimately, it tells us which muscle is going to experience recruitment and tension. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, 
force velocity relationship again huge amounts of data showing how the force velocity relationship works you know this is not something i've made up you know ultimately it just describes how how high the level of mechanical tension is going to be for a given um, velocity of movement length tension relationship and all the sarcomerogenesis literature that people think i make up all of that stuff has been gone is, can go back 30 years with that stuff all I, i'm doing is, is just actually, applying it we should probably use this podcast to go ahead and um out ourselves as the fact that we're <laughs> that we're immortals um that we're both highlanders and we've existed forever and all this of is the why data, we're on different continents all, all of the data that that you go back to even from the 50s and stuff we were behind that we were setting that all up for now and the internet was going to be um because people have tried to make up say that we made up the idea that sarcomerogenesis and all this kind of stuff, which has just been one of the most wild things I've had to read is like, we just came up with this. I'm like, we're pointing at stuff. They, I sent you the one where they first discovered, um, uh, actin and myosin. They were talking about the filaments and that was from 50. I want to say 50. What did I say? It was 53, maybe 53 or 57. Either way, it was like in the 50, I think you're right. 53 or 57. But then that was around the time they hadn't identified it. We put, we both put it together. So it was in the fifties. They said, Hey, there's some little filaments in here, really like microscopic things that are causing muscle contraction. And they do state in there. There's one more. And it was Titan that they're talking about. And they're like, there's one more. There's like a stretchy one. We don't know. And it wasn't until the seventies that they were able to kind of fully identify Titan. And that was the one you sent me. So that's decades and decades and decades of replicatable research as if, physiology somehow changed and we evolved into a completely different species within that time. So I, this idea that we, we came up with these concepts when all we're doing is looking at what the researchers already discovered. And then they were taking those things and saying, okay, well, this is how these physiological concepts apply to strength training and they're replicatable throughout the research and have been for decades. And exactly. then everybody's Ultimately, like, oh, and Chris just, just saying, made this shut up. We're just saying, here's the stimulating rates model, which says, Recruitment is important and tension is important. Well, then all you then have to do is go trailing through the literature looking for anything that affects recruitment or tension. I mean, it's not really that difficult, you know. So you start looking at force velocity relationships or length tension relationships because that tells you about tension. You start looking at fatigue because that tells you about recruitment. And so, you know, when people are trying to understand how this stuff works, you just start with those two fundamental yep. observations and you work down from there and you go what in the physiology affects those two things and everything else just falls into place all of the other stuff is just applied physiology that's very well described in lots of areas of exercise science all we're doing is just bringing it into the model and saying clearly if tension and recruitment are relevant these are also relevant so here's here's the argument against that and that that i ran into in a particular discussion was for example, a dumbbell pullover or a barbell pullover is not a lat exercise. And the person that the the length and partial hive mind now are mad and now they, they actually want to go do, they say, well, nobody can say that, that a dumbbell pullover or a barbell, barbell pullover isn't going to grow your lats because this is where we're at now. We don't have any hypertrophy research that has looked at a dumbbell or barbell pullover for and actually measured, you know, cross-sectional area, fascicle links, penation angles. We don't have any of that stuff. And we actually need – so what I think 
has transitioned now is that according to the hive mind, we need a study done on virtually almost every exercise for every muscle group in order to come to any type of, you know, consensus discussion about what grows what. And well, this is the same problem, isn't it? It's like, well, okay, so how do I know that the dumbbell pullover won't grow my calf muscles? How do I know that? Well, obviously, anatomy tells me that it's impossible, but how do I actually know that if I haven't done a study? Well, at some point, you have to draw a line um, because if people are drawing a line and saying, if you haven't got a study to show it, then we can't say it. Well, that's scholastic rather than scientific, I have to say straight away. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, um, if you're doing that, then where do you draw the line? Because if you haven't got a study that shows the dumbbell pullover you know, doesn't cause growth in the calf muscles, then I can go away and I can say maybe it does, but that would be that would be really stupid. So why why is it really stupid? You know, you've you've clearly decided that basic anatomy is acceptable as 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 a way to draw inferences, um, but you're not happy with neuromechanical matching as a way to draw inferences, even though it's very well documented and described and has been used to basically make musculoskeletal models since the dawn of musculoskeletal modeling. So where are you drawing the line and why is it an arbitrary location? That's my starting point. I think that the argument there would be that we're not we're not using a dumbbell pullover to measure calf growth because we're not we're not doing we're not loading um, plantar flexion. So yeah, but what I'm saying is no, I, I know I know what you're saying. Similarly, I'm, when we look at the dumbbell pullover, we know that we're not loading the lats either. Now, they're saying, we know you can't say that. I say, why? Why can I say it's acceptable because you're you're using anatomy to draw an inference in the first case that I can't grow my calves with a dumbbell pullover because of anatomy data. You're inferring from the anatomy data that you've got that I can't grow the calves using that exercise. But you won't permit me to draw inferences from neuromechanical matching. So one of, one of those things you're accepting is acceptable to draw inferences from, the other one you're not. And I'm saying, well, why have you drawn the line there? What is the reasoning for drawing the line there and not somewhere else? And that, what I'm saying is, and I think, you, I mean, you already get this, is where we're at now is, is the whole reason that that question gets brought up is that do we even have enough data to create a model is because now it becomes a case of, well, we don't have, as I said, we don't have a study done that looks at longitudinal hypertrophy for this model, for this, or, or for this, for this uh, muscle, for this exercise, and this muscle for that exercise, and this muscle for that exercise. And it's kind of like it comes back to the point that you made a little bit earlier. Then how do we even write programs? How do we even write a program? So don't don't we have? Do we need? Or can we write a, a glute program? Because we don't have a lot of glute longitudinal hypertrophy research right we don't have we don't have um i think for example think about it we just had the very first hip thrust um longitudinal hypertrophy study done last year that was the first time ever despite the fact that brett's been talking about hip thrust for like 12 years now or however long it's been right and he's grown tons of girls butts using hip thrust loading hip thrust loading bridges doing all that kind of stuff so do we do we know that the hips do hip extension did we need a longitudinal hypertrophy uh, study done to say that loading hip extension is going to grow the glutes? I mean, I mean just, I, to, just, to, just to clarify that point, um, obviously the really interesting innovation about the hip thrust and the glute bridge is that it's loading 
the hip extension movement in full hip extension, which right. is exactly where the moment arm data suggests that the glute will have best leverage and therefore will be called upon to or used by the central nervous system in accordance with the principle of neuromechanical matching. Right. I mean, ultimately, the moment arm data for the glute has been around for decades and actually was you know, really instrumental in understanding how um, the glute functions in hip extension motions. The fact that the glute does work better in the hip thrust than the glute, which is a perfect example of neuromechanical matching. And actually, what is also interesting is, is all of those quote-unquote bicep studies were actually neuromechanical matching studies too. So we had Murray that went through and said, let's look at all of the elbow flexors and their leverages in different degrees of, of elbow flexion, right? And it, even with a different wrist posi or forearm position, right? And so he was able to say, okay, if you have a supinated wrist position and you do elbow flexion, then the biceps are going to do the majority of work from an extended elbow up to about 90 degrees. If you have a neutral forearm wrist position, you know, it's going to be somewhere around... And that's zero. the crazy thing because... Most bodybuilders will accept without thinking that a supinated wrist uses the biceps more and a pronated grip uses the brachioradialis more, not realizing that they are literally accepting the existence of neurochemical matching as a guiding principle. And right. And what I'm getting at is with be, these guys who say we don't have enough data, we need blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, if you understand what you're looking at, the data is there. So when they did all of these bicep studies and they've done them in a multitude of ways, and they keep screaming that it says, oh, the biceps grow longer, lo grow better at longer lengths. I'm like, well, you're loading the biceps where it has the best leverage. So all you're just continuously doing is a neuromechanical matching study. So they did the one. I thought this one, this was pretty funny. I was sitting in the airport when uh, somebody sent me that incline, incline, it was the incline dumbbell curl versus the preacher curl. So the incline dumbbell curl has more of a mid-range resistance profile, loads the, loads the bicep more mid-range to short. And then well, you've, you've immediately just fried a load of people's minds by saying that. So you might need to expand on that. Okay. Well, I will get back to this. So I got sent this study and at the very top of the study, just to, I just always think it's funny how we, you and I end up saying the same thing to different people. Whenever somebody sends us a study, we send one to each other. So my buddy sends me this study. He goes, what do you make of this study? So the, I'm at the very top of the study, I don't even have to go down to it. They actually draw you out a graph showing where the peak resistance occurs in the range of motion. So I looked down through the study, and it was well-trained women, and they didn't grow. They were measuring the biceps, I believe, in this study, and they didn't grow any biceps from doing an inclined dumbbell curl. Now, I know that blows everybody's mind who's like, what? Who? who doesn't either follow us as their first time listening to the podcast or whatever. I wasn't really surprised at all. So the incline dumbbell curl has a resistance profile where you're going to have peak resistance that's going to start when you're at basically 90 degrees of elbow flexion on up. And they they show a graph for this at the top of the study. So it's not like there's some you got to have some secret decoder ring to understand this information. At the very top of the study, they have a little graph that shows this. So if you can do paint by numbers, you can follow this freaking study. So if you look at the top, they say this is where the elbow flexors are loaded in the incline dumbbell curl, and this is where they're loaded in the preacher curl. And I'm like, I look at the study and I go, this is just a replication of the other studies. 
they loaded the biceps at the bottom and then they loaded the elbow flexors at the top. So, so you're telling me that the incline dumbbell curl is not a stretch position exercise? <laughs> I, I'm definitely telling you they do not load the, bice, the biceps brachii very well, 100%. <laughs> and so the women who were well-trained didn't see any biceps growth. And everybody's like, huh. And I'm like, why are you confused? If you do a preacher curl with a barbell or dumbbell, you're loading the resistance profile dictates that the biceps brachii has the most leverage in that position. So that's what's going to grow the most. It drops off at the top, it's heavy at the bottom. Okay, well, that's where a fully extended elbow. Those are all neuromechanical matching studies. What I'm saying is, with the Murray study alone, let's just pretend all those bicep studies never happened. We could take a fairly good estimate. Hey, look, the biceps brachii has the best leverage to do elbow flexion from pretty much that fully extended elbow position to about 70 to 90 degrees. So if I load elbow flexion predominantly from those in those ranges of motions, I should bias the, the biceps more. Didn't need those other studies to know that. And I'm, I'm saying that's fine that we have them. What I mean is when people tell us that we do not have enough data to create predictable outcomes for hypertrophy, that's bullshit. I think that's bullshit. Now, I'm not saying we can get It's also inconsistent, correct. which is the point that I'm adding. Um, I'm saying if people are merrily programming, you know, supinating grip biceps curls for biceps and then pronating grip for brachyradialis, they are automatically, because there's no data that shows that works, <laughs> you know, in terms of hypertrophy <laughs> data. There's no hypertrophy study shows that works. We look to see. I said, because if anybody wanted to kill those bicep studies for, for the whole stretch mediated shit, if they would just do a cross-sectional area measurement for the brachioradialis, and then they did Which the same Which is what the Pinto study, study did back yes, in 2012. Yes, yes, they just did that. If they did two, two measurements, they measured the biceps brachii and loaded at the bottom, and they measured the brachioradialis. Well, they measured both of them, and then but did both of those. They would say, well, the group that loaded did the top Or they could measure fascicle lengths. Or they could measure fascicle lengths, which I've asked. I've literally had some of the researchers, they follow me, and I'm like, why didn't y'all measure the fascicle lengths? Because you and I have said... This is also the still we're still in the same conversation here of do we have enough data for a model where we've said if somebody shows us fascicle length increases in the biceps brachii from doing that, I will be like, well, they did. They had some stretch mediated hypertrophy. I don't have a problem saying that. What I'm saying is as of right now, we have nobody's done that. Okay, so it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. What I'm what I am saying is the idea that the biceps, quote unquote, grow better at longer lengths. There's no data that shows that. I'm talking about stretch-mediated hypertrophy. Okay. <laughs> let me let me rephrase there. Don't make that face at me. I'm saying stretch. <laughs> you said it. Okay, this, is just, this is such a bullshit discussion, though, for this reason. <laughs> the biceps, technically, to load them properly, are at a more lengthened position. Because of neuromechanical matching. Because of neuromechanical really matching. That's where they have the best leverage. In the lengthened position. That's just how neuromechanical matching works. Okay. Well, here's the thing, Chris. So then here's the, the part that gets frustrating when you understand all of, the, all of these nuances. So if you understand that the biceps have the best leverage to do elbow flexion in a more lengthened position, that's not what we consider stretch mediated hypertrophy. However, if you also understand that concept and that leverages matter and that the lats don't have leverage in a more highly flexed shoulder position and that the pecs do, why aren't we applying these concepts to a quote-unquote model? 
So if you're at 180 degrees of shoulder flexion where your arm's straight overhead, and you can literally do, um, and somebody did do this on YouTube, they did a self-correction after I told them, and you can literally do the rubber band thing on the skeleton to show that the, 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 the costal pecs and even some of the sternal pec fibers have a really great leverage, um, have, a, have a really great joint torque um, in that more highly flexed humeral position where the arm's overhead, and they can pull on the humerus. Uh, in that position, but the lats don't. They lay wrap right up around the shoulder joint and they don't have any leverage. So I don't feel like we need a hypertrophy study to just look at that and go, the pecs have really good leverage to do this motion. But what? Exactly. And the point I'm making is that people are inconsistent because they will absolutely apply this principle in certain situations and then suddenly turn around and say, you can't apply it in others. Everybody is saying that you grow brachioradialis from pronated grip curls and supinated grip curls grow the biceps brachii. But suddenly, when you apply exactly the same logical process to another muscle group, like, for example, the lats in the case of the pullover, they don't want to hear you. So ultimately, because I think, stretch can overcome leverage. Well, it or can life. if you do a static stretch, absolutely, because okay. you don't that's, need to activate see, the that's muscle. People get confused because then as soon as we use a stretching study, they go, well, you guys said that stretch uh, can't overcome leverage. I'm like, if I'm just doing a, a, a static stretch, we're not dealing with the same physiological principles as we are in a strength training exercise. Why? We're back to the whole thing that people cannot understand two concepts at one time. People cannot... Basically, neuromechanical matching determines whether a muscle is going to be activated or not. If you're doing yeah. a static stretch, your muscle's not activated. So tell me again, neuromechanical matching would apply in this situation. <laughs> it doesn't. At that point, we're literally just stretching out the, the sarcomere and tighten, and we're getting passive tension because we're moving, pat, we're moving into a range of motion where we can actually get... Um, um, the stiff segment of Titan to stretch again. We even don't, without activation. Even exactly. without activation. So then their argument there is, do those fibers that are not active not get stretched out? Um, and No, because your range of motion isn't long enough. Your unless, of, unless you're doing some really kind of weird combination static stretch strength training exercise. Right. But if you do, what you're basically doing there is a extreme static stretch and you're using the resistance of your load to push you into that range of motion. Well, okay, fine. But you're going to have to increase that range of motion every single time you go in the gym if you want to continue creating sarcomeriogenesis. And I bet you can't do that. Well, you literally you, can't do that. If you can, then that's probably limited to a small number of muscle groups that you're going to be able no, to do. Or that somebody that's got this like hypermobile or something that they're, and they probably, if they're hypermobile, they probably have already got those adaptations anyway. So these are not, when you understand these concepts, that's what I mean, like these discussions just start getting silly. So if we're if we're just doing a pullover and we're like okay we know the lats don't have very good leverage, I, even though um, oh here's the, been the other good one I've had to deal with nobody likes the Ackland study now, everybody likes the Kukul study. So you want to talk about internal momentums versus lines of action? We I, yeah we can. <laughs> We're making this our podcast, and we're we're dictating that everybody needs 120 IQ to get through it. Then we we do. Um, so now that was the one that came up. So people overlaid Ackland. Well, actually, Ackland did that himself. He overlaid the Google study with his own work. 
And then if you look at the Google study, the lats, we're, we're kind of staying on the same topic. This has to do with a model, right? This has to do with looking at a model. Neuromechanical matching is part of the model. So if you take the Ackland study and the Google study, you're looking at line of action versus um, them actually doing um, what Ackland did, where he had an apparatus built, attached cables onto the um, uh, the different tendons and then looked at the various internal moment arms and joint torques that were created as they moved the uh, humerus through degrees of range of, of motion. Yeah, I would, I would classify the Ackland work as, as basically direct measurements, whereas the Kukla study is basically inferring, inf inferring information rather than actually measuring it directly. And I actually, I linked the, in a discussion with people, I'm like, you guys understand there's a study that there's a study that looked at line of action studies to show that line of action is um, highly erroneous in a multitude of occasions because, as you said, you're inferring particular joint torques are created simply by going from a proximal to distal line. So there's a multitude of problems. It's not that it's terrible. It's just not precise. Oh, it's really, really imprecise when you deal with muscles that are complex geometry because you need hundreds, if not thousands, of actual points of origin and insertion to actually create your um, lines of action uh, and, and, and summarize them to a meaningful result. And even then, even with like the Ackland one, which I, I still think Ackland is pretty much going to be the gold standard for a long time. The reason why he hasn't gone back, back into another one is because there's not really much of a need to. Right, that's pretty much as good as it's could do a transverse get. plane. Could do a transverse plane one, which Kugel <laughs> did, and I, I think the, um, I think it was even Ackland said this in his study, but I have to go back and look. If you look at the Kugel study, you can get some pretty good ideas about the delts because you're dealing with a single point of origin to insertion. So it, it, those are a little bit better in terms of, of not exactness or preciseness, but, but the pecs horrible. Just trying to understand it in the transverse plane. Because there's yeah, there's data. so much going on there because we have we have a we have different lines that the pecs are, are pulling in um, from the the. The, the costal to the sternal to the clavicular we have different points of origins they even have if you look at it the, the pecs are, are really quite complex because if you go to the costal their their origin is the most um, distal but their insertion point in the humerus is the most proximal so you have a bunch of different things going on with the pecs so as you even if you move just through simple horizontal adduction you have you could have a you and I talked about this. You said I w it would be interesting to see where through the range of motion in horizontal adduction is there kind of happenings where I'm gaining or losing leverage between the different. I'm convinced there must there must and be differences in that range. That there's going to be some difference change ups that go on yeah. there that that happen, and I'll bet money if you overlaid that with their length tension relationships, it would look very cool. Right. <laughs> well, that's another. That's another of our kind of like say on the shelf the, hypotheses. I, well, it's what's interesting about that is when we talk about the model, um, is that it's when we look at the linked attention relationships and overlay that with neuromechanical matching and then EMG and kind of getting into the stuff that we we like to look at when we're trying to get really nuanced about this this stuff. As I often, I think I brought this up to you a couple of weeks ago. I said when people talk about the press and they we talk about leverages changing throughout something as simple as an overhead press, I said it's really interesting 
where certain muscles end up crossing over into active insufficiency where they also tend to lose leverage and then another muscle uh, that tends to gain leverage there that might be at mid it's mid-range where it can produce the most force it's like the way the body's put together if it wasn't put together so precisely we just would not be able to function so when you look at something like a pec press and you're actually just going through just basic sagittal flexion and just bringing the arm from down by your side like straight up in front of you um the clavicular pec have have great leverage and they but they go into active insufficiency as they get short however the anterior deltoid as it gains leverage that's going to be where it's actually going to be producing the greatest amount of force so these little handoffs that happen through those joint angle ranges of motion are also very interesting to look at from the length tension relationship as well and so when people say stuff like that, we don't have a model, we need blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, if we understand these physiological concepts and we can stack them on top of each other and look so far for the past, I think, whatever, three years now, there's no study that's been done that we didn't accurately predict the outcomes of so far. And that's not like a, we're better than everybody else. I'm saying we took the, the physiology and said, well, this is what the outcome should be for that. And then it does. I'm like, well, when I sent to you, you're like, well, is that telling us something? We're at that point now where you're like, does this tell us something we didn't already know? And the answer to that is no. Now, that, does, that doesn't mean that the, the model's perfect because we still openly have said all the time, and we it's not like a conflict or battle, but then I'll, whenever we like jump on or we have like a, a FaceTime or whatever, and I'll be like, well, what the hell then is going on right here with the calves? And you just look at me for a long time and you go, I don't know. So we don't know everything, like clearly, like there's, there's tons of stuff we don't know. We don't even, I think we're still in somewhat of a debate over delayed onset muscle soreness. I think it's going to turn out probably to be the whole muscle spindles and compression stuff kind of that we see that's going on. That's the only one that seems kind of maybe potentially plausible at this point. Yeah, but even there, there's some conflicting data backwards and forwards. It's just, you know, basically, the like we were saying in the other podcast about the stimulating edge model, it's just so predictive of what's happening. And I think people massively overestimate the challenges to it. So, like, often, we were talking about this before we came on the podcast, often people will start throwing studies around saying, you know, clearly these studies are challenging your model by showing that metabolic stress is important for hypertrophy. We are talking about a study... Um, basically just the other day. That's a okay, that segue into the next question. I got sent these multiple times this week. And so it was um, that someone said there's a couple of studies that unequivocally prove that swelling and uh, metabolites have a kind of causation by correlation with muscle growth. So you, you said you wanted to touch on those too. Yeah, I just, I'm just going to try and see if I can find the, the titles so that we've got the... Um, the reference. I, while you're looking for that, I'll have over overview it. So, and one of the ones that got sent to me was like muscular swelling has a relationship with hypertrophy, and they did an acute measure. They started the study, and it was six weeks long, and then they did a measurement to look at swelling 15 minutes after the workout. And this was uh, this was all noobs. They went in, did the workout, leg workout. Had they did uh, acute measurements for swelling after the workout and saw an enormous amount of swelling in the area that they were, they were measuring in they, there, they did multiple site measurements and then they did, um, they did muscle thickness measurements and then contrasted that to swelling measurements. And then six weeks later, they did chronic measurements to look at muscle thickness and said, Oh, look, 
the areas that had the greatest amount of swelling six weeks ago are the largest areas now with the greatest amount of muscle thickness. I sent that to you because that one got sent to me and I looked at it and I had it right when I was looking at it, but I thought it was so stupid. I was like, why would somebody spend six weeks doing these measurements? So all that I told the person then, I was like, all this tells me is that wherever sites that had the greatest amount of swelling was where they had the most type two fibers. Exactly. And I said to you, and this was your response to me. You said that's the type two fiber type study. I'm like, thank you. That's all I thought. I thought it was a trick. I literally read the study and thought, this is like the dumbest thing I've ever read done. Why would you even like? You already know this. This is what I mean, Chris. Like when I read that, I'm like, but we already know that. Why would they spend six weeks doing this and then go, aha? Because I don't think they necessarily do. That is and ridiculous. I think this, is the, this is the disconnect that we've got between hypertrophy research and physiology. If we understand physiology, we would look at the prediction and we would say, this is why that would happen. Right. Um, but if you don't know that, then you're operating completely in the dark without understanding that these physiological relationships exist. Then you're going to basically come up with something that's like magical fairy dust, which is you sprinkle metabolic stress on something and it automatically creates hypertrophy. Well, we know that fast-rich fibers produce more metabolite accumulation. I mean, that's yep. hopefully something that isn't surprising <laughs> to people that you get more uh, kind of glycolytic activity with, with a fast-rich fiber. We also know that it's the pH, the, the acidosis of the muscle fiber that causes intracellular muscle swelling, which well, is the right. primary form of water or fluid increase during exercise. So we increase intracellular water content. And that's occurring due to osmosis because of the increase in pH inside the muscle fiber. You're creating glycolytic byproducts and you're going to end up with muscle water being sucked into the, the fiber. That's just osmosis. So you end up with a muscle that's swelling, but the swelling is going to be greater in A, the areas of the muscle where you've got most fast-rich fibers, and B, the people who have more fast-rich fibers. And that can be really varied. You can have people with 70, 80% fast-rich fibers if you, yeah. you know, find them in the right place. Um, and basically, that that's going to make a massive difference. So after if you training... Wanted to, if you wanted to make that study just to prove that one, then you do the... Uh, is, it the is it carnosine measurements? Sure. Uh, and then yeah. you would be able to tell, okay, who... You could literally do that and then just show why these studies are pointless. So if you did the carnosine measurements for people, you could say, okay, these people, we predict that they're going to have more swelling and they're going to have more uh, metabolic stress that's going to go on in these muscles because they show a predominantly degree of fast twitch muscle fibers there. And I uh, 100% can tell you that's exactly what they would find. So all that they showed in these studies were that if you go look at the little dots, that whatever the dots are at the highest there for the swelling, those are the people that just had more type 2 fibers in those areas where they did the measurements. These are all predictable. These are all normal and predictable. We don't need these kind of studies done. And what muddies up the waters in these discussions is when people who do not understand these physiological concepts use these as platforms to say, see, this is a, a case where muscular swelling and the pump has a predictive cause for muscle hypertrophy. I'm like, that's not what that shows. That is not what that shows. And if you understand day one about physiology, you understand that's not what that shows. And then the other one, so that's the swelling one. And I remember looking at, somebody sent me that and I looked at it and I immediately, everything we just discussed went through my head. But I sat there going, but why would they even do this study? 
do you know you understand what i'm getting at like when i when i read it I'm but like, that's why, why would... i think there's a there's a lack of basic physiological understanding in hypertrophy research we talked about this before we talked about the model people don't come to hypertrophy research with an understanding of how physiology works they don't understand really how recruitment works properly in terms of central motor command and limax for example we've got people who actually think that peripheral fatigue is what causes muscular failure we've actually got people out there working in hypertrophy science who think that we reach task failure in a set because the muscle because can't produce force anymore. the muscle can't produce force and they will literally write that in a paper and it will get past peer review <laughs> and it's like how is that happening how that is, is that so happening wild. it's so wild that we have we literally have a dude that's the most popular guy on social media now in sam Sulik, who's like this kid that 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 was like the coolest thing that, he, that he's ever said he he's like well you know because that's you know as much force as the muscles produce and then he stops i should find the clip and send it to you it was really breath breathtaking to see somebody like sam who a lot of people think is just like this roided out media he goes that's not actually true because if i hook something up to my biceps that could that could actually stimulate harder contractions they would continue to produce more force dude almost passed out i was like so sam's like 21 years old and his knowledge about physiology exceeds all these dudes that have spent like 10 years in school studying this stuff that don't know anything. So he's actually a smart kid. I like him a lot. He's, oh, he's a, a very <laughs> smart kid. But so, your, your, your biceps example that you gave when you actually live on a, on a yeah. podcast in the past, you, you invented a test for people to go away and do. And then you had people sending you clips of them doing I'm it. I'm like, just for people that were arguing with me, I'm like, don't argue just go do it and you're going to find out exactly what i'm telling you is true so as soon as you hit failure you can regardless of whether or not there's a delay from right or left arm whichever sequence you go into as soon as you hit failure and you lower back down you can immediately do one more rep if you go to the bilateral version so yeah so what you were saying was do your kind of eight rep max or whatever rep max you're comfortable doing normally um, with both arms together in a dumbbell curl and then at the end of that set when you reach failure in that set immediately just continue with one of the arms when you put the other dumbbell down on the other side or whatever you need yep. to do to be comfortable and continue. You can still do another rep. You can do at least one more rep. I think you. I, I was tagged in a video where somebody Some, definitely did failure and did two. Yes, I, he saw, did two. I saw he did two. I'm like, if that doesn't prove to you that muscular failure is caused by um, maximum perceptions of effort, um, then I don't really know what can because it's clearly not muscle force that's doing that. You can do this. You can actually do that. Coming back to people talking about our, our connection here was that there's still people writing, quote unquote, hypertrophy research saying that muscles fail because they can't produce force anymore. There's always going to be a motor unit recruitment deficit, no matter what, no matter how good you get at this. But you can even do this in a set. If you, in your mind, make the set feel harder than you think it is, you can change that in the middle of a set. I've done it where I think I'm grinding... And I almost do like a relaxation thing and I can still eke out a few more reps. I don't even know if I'm, because if you're like, oh, this is terrible in your head, this is hard, this is terrible. Like, you know what I mean? This is so hard to get this well, that's, next rep. That's the fundamental element of the psychobiological model of fatigue, which basically says that your motivation is going to affect your maximum tolerable perception of effort. If you become right. demotivated for whatever reason, you're going to you're gonna lose a rep or two. Whereas if you become more motivated, you can potentially get another rep. Which also, here's the, the part of the, how the model so neatly explains everything. The one that I couldn't believe that I had this conversation a year ago with a PhD who literally teaches in schools. And he's, 
he's one of the most difficult people to have a conversation with because he's so academia based and he can't, he will do a 22 minute word salad, talking word salad and never say a thing. It's like politician speech about hypertrophy. And he, we were talking about the whole rep range theory and muscle damage. And he goes, well, muscle damage clearly causes, clearly does cause muscle growth. And I sat there and I was like, wait, hold up. Cause I haven't talked to him in a long time. This is our first conversation in a while. And I was like, how? He goes, well, we have absolutely tons of proof to show uh, there's, you know, anabolic, anabolic signaling that occurs from, you know, muscle damage. And I'm like, right. To repair the damage that occurred from apoptosis. Like that's really okay. Yeah, we do know that myofibril protein synthesis and muscle protein, whole muscle protein synthesis increase when muscle damage occurs because there's got to be a cellular repair process that it occurs at the myofiber level. And like he was totally caught off guard by that. I'm like, that's really, that's not like news, bro. But he's, they're still teaching this shit. So he got into the, he goes, well, he goes, well, we've done testing on the labs. You know, we, we, even with the rep range stuff, we see people, some people grow better. They do grow better. We don't know all this stuff. Some people grow better by doing a set of 10 and they, then some people grow better by doing a set of six. And we have some people that just grow real tons better by doing a set of 20. And I literally stopped and I said, what would be the mechanism there? Where's the data? <laughs> well, that was easy. That data. And I was like, well, okay. I said, if you take somebody who really enjoys, and I switched this over in my ladies group this week to see if I would get any feedback. And sure enough, I did. I increased the rep ranges a little bit on some exercises. And some of the ladies were so happy. And I'm like, there you go. If you love doing sets of 12, you are going to go out there and get some results with sets of 12. And listen, hey, if you yeah. hate doing sets of five, but you love doing sets of 12, guess where your results are going to be? They're going to sure. be as, but the actual physiological mechanisms are the same, but the motivation changes our effort and our effort changes our motor unit recruitment. No, look at there. We're all the way back to motor unit recruitment again. Yep. So when you take all these things and you break them down and people say, we don't have enough data to look at a model, I'm like, but we do. You just have to go read a physiology textbook rather than the hypertrophy literature. That's the mix up right there. You just said it. So the problem mm. is these people are just looking at the hypertrophy. They literature. think hypertrophy exists in absence of physiology. <laughs> yes, exactly. that's the best way I've heard it. They think that, yes, that muscle growth exists somehow. <laughs> Detached from human I heard, beings. I heard put this best was when Lyle McDonald was writing more and he had that, that sarcastic tone in his writing. And he he's the one that I first read through and said, he had the mechanical tension study that goes all the way back to 79 that they literally say it occurs from passive and active uh, mechanical tension and the total tension is driving the, the muscular hypertrophy outcome. Yeah, the gold spring studies, yeah. 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 And he's like, he goes, <laughs> I don't remember how he wrote it. It was really funny. But he says something like, he goes, we got studies, he goes, as far back as 79, they're showing it's just tension. And we got these hypertrophy researchers going, we don't know how this, we don't know how muscle growth happens. They're just standing around like, hi, we don't even know how this happens. And I always thought that was funny because that's exactly how I felt because we have all this research that goes back in the physiology models saying this is how this happens and we have all the people doing hypertrophy research going we're just clueless man it's multifaceted there's a whole bunch of magical things that happen that we don't know 
And all they the say physio- they don't understand fatigue. Uh, fatigue is complex and multifactorial. I'm like, yes, would you like to actually go through each of the factors? Because that's what I've done. <laughs> I've literally gone through every single fatigue they factor fatigue understood also- how it impacts on how it impacts on the hypertrophy model. And it fits perfectly with the data that we've got. Isn't that a surprise? Well, if you actually did the reading, you'd see that for yourself. The, the fatigue one is the other one that's also magical, mystical. The yeah. systemic fatigue, when you ask them, well, if you do Which the big heavy. system are you talking about? System, right. So the, when you'll say, they'll say, well, when I do the big heavy compounds, I have more systemic fatigue. I'm like, what you mean is when you, you do heavy sets of five on squats and deadlifts, you release a, a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which causes central nervous system fatigue. Because if you're training a lot of muscles at one time, you're going to get a higher expression uh, of those particular things that cause an afferent feedback that causes a reduction. Motor cardiovascular motor. too. Yes, yeah, yeah. cardiovascular too, right? So we're actually creating, all of these things are so easily explainable when you understand the physiology and you're like, well, if dude, if you're doing, if you do a set of 20 reps on squats and you're talking about how, uh, you know, they're so fatiguing, I'm like, you're right, because there's a multitude of fatiguing mechanisms that you're creating by doing that. If you do, you know, five by five on squats, there's a multitude of fatiguing mechanisms that you're creating. However, that's an interesting discussion, isn't it? Because if I do one set of 20, how many more sets of 20 rep squats are you going to do? None. Exactly. None. Yeah. You'll do one and you'll be done. But if you did sets, say... I think I have done one, actually. <laughs> this is the most awful thing. And that's why people one. are like, I just like doing this fun. I'm like, there's nothing fun about that to me. But if you did, say, sets of five on squats with one or two RAR, you can do three or four sets like that, right? Like, no matter how heavy it is, I've done that. Even when I was, like, a near 700 squatter, like, I, I did sets of 585 for sets of four and five reps, you know, with maybe a rep or so left in the tank. And I would do, I could do multiple sets like that. Now, I would be pretty, you know, pretty tired after three or four sets of that. But I could only do, if I did a set of 20 rep squats, that was it. I was pretty much cooked. So we understand those. And one of the more interesting conversations I had was um, about the, 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 this should give you an idea of what's going on there from a fatigue standpoint is a, a buddy that did dog crap training. He said, nothing tanked my vertical jump, like high rep leg work. And I'm like, there you go. So if you want to test if central fatigue is present, we can do that with vertical jumping or something that involves an explosive movement. So we can test these fatigue mechanisms. So to understand if fatigue is present and why it's present. Yeah, I mean, just just to kind of um, expand on that a little bit, uh, there's something that I think is really important to just mention in terms of the terminology here. I'll wait for Paul to finish throwing his uh, headset around. Um, so in terms of terminology, um, when we say fatigue, uh, fatigue is a objective change in exercise performance. So basically... Um, there is only ever one kind of fatigue. There's just fatigue. That's it. There's there's no way you can say I've got this type of fatigue or that type of fatigue or another type of fatigue. Fundamentally, fatigue is just the objective reduction in exercise performance. Say we're losing reps in a set or we're getting weaker because we're testing strength, maybe in a maximum isometric contraction or something like that. So basically, it is there's only one kind of fatigue and that is fatigue. That's it. But we do use terms like central nervous system fatigue or we say um, peripheral muscular fatigue now when we say that we're not referring to fatigue and it's it's actually quite 
uh, annoying that we use this terminology this way, but what we're actually using is a, um, a fatigue, we're referring to a fatigue mechanism. So essentially, when we say central nervous system fatigue, we're not actually describing a type of fatigue. What we're describing is a type of fatigue mechanism. So ultimately, every time there is a modifying adjective in front of the noun fatigue, what we're actually doing is describing a type of fatigue mechanism. Now, the word mechanism is missed off from, from just because of habit or whatever, but ultimately they're always mechanisms. They're not actually different kinds of fatigue, which is very confusing, very annoying, but that's unfortunately part of the deal when you're coming to exercise science is that the terminology is actively conspiring to confuse you. So essentially we've got these multiple different types of fatigue mechanism. So when somebody says systemic fatigue, they're not actually describing a type of fatigue. They are telling you that there is a type of fatigue mechanism. And therefore, the first question that we would then ask is which system are you referring to and how does it create fatigue? Because it itself is not fatigue. It itself is a fatigue mechanism. So how is it doing that? Well, ultimately, if it's a central nervous system fatigue mechanism, the only way it can do that really is by reducing motor unit recruitment, which is supraspinal central nervous system fatigue. That's the reality of, of how that will work systemically. Uh, if it's a cardiovascular related fatigue, then that's a whole different bunch of problems relating to autonomic nervous system activity and, and reactivation. And that's something that I don't really propose to go into on this podcast, but ultimately it relates to, um, I'm just going to tell Paul that I can't hear him at the moment. He's talking to me and I can't hear him. I don't know what he's done with his headphones, but uh, we can't hear you at the moment, Paul. So um, <laughs> he's accidentally unplugged himself. So there we go. I still can't hear you now. You're going to have to plug yourself in. And he's gone. So I guess I'll just keep talking for a minute while he plugs himself back in. And now we can hear you. Yeah, we okay. can hear you now. I don't know what happened. Nothing happened. I was we, all plugged in. We lost time. you. Yeah, we lost you. So yeah, so fatigue mechanisms, really confusing terminology, but basically uh, anything that is a, a it looks like it's a type of fatigue is not actually a type of fatigue because fatigue is only ever one thing. Uh, the uh, the actual type of fatigue refers to a type of fatigue mechanism. And if we're asking the question about mechanism, the first question is how is it reducing strength or muscular endurance or exercise performance? And of course, when it refers, refers to the neuromuscular system, the only way that you can really do that centrally is by reduction in motor unit recruitment, which is supraspinal fatigue, which is what you were just saying a few minutes ago before you took your headset off and ran around the room a few times <laughs> this actually everything just went into are there two studies that we were covering as i got i get another pretty good question my my sometimes my followers do ask me good questions uh, the other question was I, it will probably be a short answer but um are there are there any possible are there any other potential mechanisms that we aren't aware of that could be causing hypertrophy. So let's take the three-prong model approach in case most people don't know what the three-prong model we just talked about was metabolic stress, muscle damage, and mechanical tension. We know it's really just mechanical tension now. And I think, and I don't know if you pick up on this, but I feel like um, that we're still in a kind of... Um, What's the, how do I even describe this? I, I still feel like there's this thing out there where every, where there's all these guys are trying to create, create other possible scenarios where hypertrophy is occurring. And it's just a lot of weird conjecture. 
So they, it's like they really believe that hypertrophy is like multifaceted and there's all these other pathways and all these other signaling. And so if it's almost like they know that the, well, muscle, nobody talks about muscle damage anymore. I think everybody, everybody, even the people who tried to push that one forward as part of the three pronged model, they've all pretty much accepted it's not, it doesn't do it. So that's why it was wild to have that conversation with the other PhD who said, well, we know muscle damage does. I'm like, okay, even the people who said muscle damage was part of the three pronged approach, they've, 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 you know, walked, they've, you know, walked away from that one, you know? So a metabolic stress, I feel like was pretty much on its last legs about a year ago. And I feel like with, you know, with Stu coming out and pretty much making Instagram posts saying it was never even alive, it's a dead theory of hypertrophy, no serious researcher ever believed that. That's what he said. That's his words on an Instagram post. You, like, Absolute that's what he, savage. <laughs> he said no serious researcher ever believed metabolic stress caused my, He's right there. He, go to his he's account an absolute savage. That's yeah, he, he said no serious researcher ever believed Amazing. metabolic stress caused muscle growth. I like that. I like that director. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So... <laughs> Here's one thing, and don't give me the I don't know. I'm just saying this, putting it out there. The anabolic steroid study at when they when they had yeah, guys exactly. at home. Exactly. That's the only thing that you can really hang your hat on at the moment is anabolics. So they sat at home for 10 weeks, took 600 milligrams of tests, and literally added new myofibrils. And we know that. Because to a greater they, extent than the people who are actually strength training. What's yeah. wild about that one that I love that study so much is is that when they, they had them, they, you just sitting at home for 10 weeks doing nothing. And then the natural guys had to train for 10 weeks, and then the steroid guys went in after 10 weeks, and their strength gains were almost as much, which means the only difference was because coordination. So if they'd have had maybe a week of just two weeks of doing the lifts, they would have ran past the natural guys, like not even like they're sitting still. Because the dudes that got to take steroids and train on the graph chart, it's so far off the charts compared to everybody else, it's wild. So here's the thing I do want to say about that is um, people have asked me a lot, and we kind of covered this in the podcast, I don't think you need to train any different being on or off. And that's coming from somebody that's been on and been, I've been off now for like nine years. I, when I was a natural for 20 years and I, and I started using uh, anabolics, I didn't change anything in my training. They just made my training better. So I didn't go in and do the whole thing where I'm, I'm going to pile on. I did try to do that a few times and I actually found the same thing as when I was natural. I just couldn't pull it off. I would find that my progressive overload tanked. I would find that I was tired. Um, I, I found that what, even like the, what would you consider as a feel, a feeling of fatigue of just being tired and, and lethargy that was there. And I, but I also found that my lifts drop. So clearly steroids do create a type of recovery effect, but the fact is we do not have a lot of research on guys taking super normal doses and then what all is going on physiologically there. But I will say this, I think that steroids muddied the waters a ton in these discussions because a guy can get on steroids and do anything for the most part and get results. Or nothing, in fact. Or nothing, or sit at home and get results. So bodybuilders and bodybuilding coaches have, because of steroids, have kept these the, the waters very 
muddied for decades and decades because people still run around and say dumb shit like, well, then why Jay Cutler this or why Ronnie Coleman that or why this person that or why person that? I'm like, because they are hyper responders to drugs and they can do anything. Dude, Kevin Levroni, like, would come off. He talked, he talked very openly about the fact that he is a, like, he's a crazy hyper responder. He's talked about his doses, and I believe Kevin's super open because I I don't think these guys have anything to lie about. Now they're retired. They're, they've been retired for a long time. I always took Dorian as a guy that was very straightforward and honest, and that's just how he's always appeared to be. And he didn't run mega doses. When I say mega doses, I mean Dorian, I think he said, run, ran up to like 1,000 milligrams of test. Now, that's not a small dose. But when people were talking about Dorian running like 3,000 milligrams total of stuff, he always thought that was crazy that they made that shit up. But getting back to Kevin, Kevin said he would go in the offseason, come completely off everything, and he would shrink down to like 195 pounds. Like, if you saw him, he looked like guy maybe like lifted a little bit, like, you know, had good muscle tone. He would get on and in three months be in the Mr. Olympia as as big as everybody else. And he would do that on 400 milligrams of test. He said his body would just explode. Now, he wasn't – you can't look at – and it's how this muddies the waters is, is that somebody will say, well, Kevin Levroni trained like this or Kevin Levroni trained like that. I'm like, Kevin Levroni could have sat at home and been it's, twice. It's like the information – you might as well tell me what color socks he wears. I mean, that's literally the relevance <laughs> of that information. I mean, it's like what he did for training or what these guys do for training and what color socks they wear is literally as relevant, um, you know, because ultimately it has nothing to do with what they end up looking like. I made a Instagram threads comment about Arnold this past week because that comes up the mentor thing and Arnold thing. And people were like, and we should end up, I think that can potentially be our topic next time is talk about some of the theories that Jones and mentor got right. That's really still super popular right now. But I talked about the things that, that Mike got wrong and somebody had quoted that it was infinitely better than the information that Arnold was giving out at the time. And I'm like, dude, that is like saying, Mike Minter created a gourmet hamburger because everybody else was eating dog shit at the time. Everything that Arnold did was infinitely wrong. Like as far as looking at like what produces Arnold looked like he did because number one, he had a strong dietary adherence when he got ready for his contest prep. Um, He worked very hard for a lot of decades. Clearly he had great a genetics clearly, and he take, took steroids. When you have steroids and really good genetics and you work really hard and you have a high degree of adherence to your diet, you're going to have a pretty amazing physique. So when you put all of those things together, grade A genetics on steroids, strong work ethic, and you have a strong adherence to the diet, you're going to have pretty incredible outcomes. This doesn't mean what you're doing is the optimal or ideal way to train. This doesn't mean that you're training in an efficient or truly effective manner. Now, Arnold could have ended up at the same place, even training in a more, in a better manner. Like that's true, like over time. But the issue is for the, the, the average guy who's got average genetics or below average genetics, doesn't take storage and all that kind of stuff. There's nothing Arnold did that applies to him. There's nothing that Arnold did that applies to 99%. I do think the things that Mincer got correct um, was that you need a moderate amount of volume 
that you need to, and if you go read his, his interviews, when he actually really talked about how you train in his prime, he adjusted his own frequency and volume based on progressive overload. Really smart. Think about that. It's something we talk about all the time. Well, that's what we were saying just to, you know, like at the start of the podcast, ultimately, why are we talking about trying to track the, or trying to identify the perfect volume when what you could actually be doing is literally trying to identify your perfect progressive overload? I mean, if if instead of trying to say, you know, let me guess the exact amount of volume that I need, if instead of doing that, you said, what's the fastest way I can gain strength over the next, you know, kind of, you know, two or three months, and then implement that strategy, and you'll probably find that you achieve the most muscle growth over the same period of time. Obviously, you know, without, you know, kind of going down the route of, of, of training with really, really heavy weights in order to game the system, if you like, by improving coordination and, 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 and recruitment by doing I was that. I say, that's, a, that's if, actually if a fairly nuanced comment. If you aim for a rep max rather than a one rep max, then I, I would absolutely imagine that whichever, whichever, whichever training program question. got you the maximum six rep max, I would say what, that that program how, would get you the best hypertrophy. I was just going to say that. If you yeah. ask yourself the, the question of – What's going to give me the best five to six rep max? Yeah, absolutely. Over the next eight yes. months, that will give you the most hypertrophy. Whatever there you, you do go. to make that happen. There you go. There you go. But I, I brought that this, this also up from this week from the the Raphael or whatever his name is study too, is that even if somebody is seeing progressive overload, it doesn't mean that it's happening at the magnitude it could be happening as they adjusted some training variables. Because I will have guys chime in like, well, I'm doing 15 sets a week and clearly I'm recovering because I'm seeing progressive overload occurring. That doesn't mean that you're actually recovering at a greater rate than you could be. It doesn't mean that you're actually seeing the results you could be because what if you did pare it down to a lower rep range and you did leave one RIR and you reduce your volume from, say, 15 sets a week down to seven sets a week or whatever. My point is just because progressive overload is occurring doesn't mean that you're progressing at the rate as fast as possible that you could be. Or similarly, it doesn't mean that you couldn't get exactly the same results doing a third of the volume. I mean, ultimately... You know, do you really want to be in the gym doing all of that, suffering all of that and not doing something else that you could do instead? I mean, um, if you're doing all of that volume for that muscle group, are you really doing the same kind of intensity of effort on that all the other muscle groups? Thing. Wait, hold on, hold on, Chris. You know? That was an interesting thing about the study, the, the Raphael study, right? They only did legs and they still saw fatigue doing legs. So they were doing 10 to 12 to 13 or whatever they're doing, sets of legs a week, and they still saw fatigue. You see what I'm getting at? They weren't even training. So if you're taking a whole body, the whole body, and you're training the full body over the course of the week, well, there's, you're incurring more fatigue than those guys were because you're clearly going to be possibly, let's say, doing – how many sets in a week do you do total? Not just for like a muscle group, but so you do four exercises at three working sets, right? Yep. Three times three a week. 12. So 24, 36. 36. 30, yep. You do 36 sets in a week. Total, yep. Right, and if you've you've tried one other time to push that up to four sets per exercise, and you saw the bottom drop out, right? Four sets per exercise is not doable. I can add an extra exercise um, if it's a really kind of like if it's like throwing delt some flies extra, for rotator. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Rear delt flies, or you know, maybe sort of if I'm not doing any direct triceps work, and I can tibia, throw that tibialis in. raises. <laughs> I can throw that. In. I can do it, but only in that scenario. I couldn't do something more serious. Um, so absolutely, I think that, but that's, again, um, you know, I'm old, so 
I don't think I, I could do. You know what, dude? I, I started my yoke buds, and I've been riding the full body um, three times a week. Dude, that group is growing so fast. There's lots of people that love full body three times a week. I mean, absolutely love it and crush it. It's gotten me more interested in potentially going back over and switching because I really like the idea of doing a lot of cardio during the week and um, just training. You and I both, I, I can't get past four exercises no matter how I do my split. It's always going to be four maximal. I've consistently found, even if I do five, it's like you said, it's got to be something small. There's going to be, you're literally talking about a bicep curl or like a one-arm cable lateral raise or something. There, it, it's not going to be four big exercises. But if you look at how you can split your your stuff across three days a week, full body, one day of legs is just a leg curl and a leg extension. Right? It's just your quads for the day. It's a leg curl and a leg extension. And you can throw your, your big quad exercise in on a different day. Yep. So the way that you can split that across is you take what what is normally – like a quad day or hamstring, like a leg day, whatever you're doing. Let's say you do, you know, leg extension, leg press, leg curl, uh, and then like a, even like a hip thrust or whatever. Like that's a big, that's a tough workout to get through. But then you just take those and split those across the whole week. Yeah, exactly. Right. I did that for the Valkyries. And some of the ladies were like, why do our workouts look so similar? I'm like, because I just took some of your volume and just spread it across the week. It's never mind. Like I was, it was a pretty frustrating, I'm like, I'm just taking your volume for this exercise. And instead of you doing it, all of it in this one day, you're kind of doing it over the course of workouts that are a little closer together. People get weird about programming, but the, the, I, I don't, I don't know that I even, I could do when I think about a full body split. I don't know that now every time you go in and you do a full body split, you don't have four big exercises each workout, right? Um, well, yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I'm definitely kind of making use of stuff like knee extensions and leg curls that, that really does, that, I think that's really makes a lot of sense when you're trying to create a, a decent stimulus for a particular muscle, you kind of want to have a single joint exercise for it, but then I'll treat other stuff as like maintenance. So if I'm doing a, I'll, I'll generally be doing some sort of press on three different occasions. But I'm not anticipating that each of those pressing exercises is going to cause, um, you know, kind of muscle growth in all three of the areas. It's going to maintain two and, and grow the other one. So like there'll be some sort of uh, horizontal press, and then maybe some sort of uh, overhead or incline press, steep incline press, and there'll be some sort of dip. And I'm kind of trying to target delts, pecs, and triceps, but keep the others going at the same time. You can do the same thing with rowing movements. You um, you had a sample up, and it was a full body workout. Interesting, it was a full body workout, but there was an arm emphasis, and the way you set it up was like um, close grip. It was a close grip banded press, you know, more. Yeah, for so triceps. you're just pushing more stuff towards the triceps, but you're still using the other muscles to make the lift happen. So That's, you're getting that maintenance. Yes, and that was a conversation that came up this week with one of there's this guy, and he's like. I thought a full body workout was doing an exercise for each muscle. So you have to think, as you said, well, I don't want to do uh, 12 workouts in the week or I don't want to do 12, 12 exercises or, or in 12 a session exercises either. in the workout. So do you remember, did you ever go back through that old, the old, we were just talking about this with the mentor stuff. The mentor came from Arthur Jones. I don't know if a lot of people, these young guys that are kind of like into the mentor stuff realize 
Mincher actually got his ideas. He had the shift in ideology from working with Arthur Jones. Did you ever see the kind of those original Arthur Jones workouts? Did you ever see those full body workouts? So if you go to, if you go back and look at some of the Arthur Jones full body workouts, that is what he did. There was usually one, sometimes two exercises for a muscle group in a workout for the whole body. I don't know how anybody got through those. Like, you're, I'm talking, you know, in some of the old ones, I want to say there was maybe like uh, eight or nine or ten exercises. And well, he, a lot of hypertrophy studies used to do that. I mean, they would have seven or eight exercises yeah. per per workout. I mean, I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. I don't. Sometimes I look at those and I was like, "How did these guys get through the eight weeks of doing well, these workouts?" Right. Definitely not using max effort. Well, it is using max effort, maybe, but it's not using max recruitment on the last on the last uh, oh, exercises yeah, of the workout. No, yeah, there's no way. But what is always going to say? People are really pushing back on that. Actually, I've noticed people are really pushing back on the idea that exercise order matters. They suddenly turn around to me and say, you know, um, somebody you had a post about that. Okay, trains. Listen, we can... You know, the last exercise in a workout that's going to produce the same hypertrophy as if you put it first in the workout. I mean, like, you have know you where that's before? coming from, right? <laughs> you know where that's. You know where that's, that's coming from. Insane. You know where no. that's coming from. No. So they did a. There is a meta analysis out there that exists. Oh on, well, they yeah, but that's because the data they put in wasn't really you know kind of suitable for getting the answer that they got out. It's odd to me how somebody can have this mountain of evidence in front of them, where they understand fatigue exists, that there's kind of a plateau for volume, for a muscle group in a session. And all these other things, but as soon as you say something like exercise sequence matters, they will pipe up and say, "No, it doesn't." There's not a study that shows that, and you're like, "It's quite a few, actually." But okay, uh, okay, that meta analysis was junk. So I, I don't really. The, the, I, basically, there's a couple of good studies which show that exercise order does matter, and then there's a, a, a quite a few less kind of well put together studies in my I opinion. Went through them. That show that they, they don't that it doesn't matter. I and through. if you pull them all together and make a meta analysis out of it, you end up with something that doesn't quite reach significance. <laughs> it's like, well, okay. Yeah, I went through them, and it's um, a lot of them. You have to go through and look at the individual studies, and you'll realize why. It, yeah. it, there's the the overall the kind of the confidence interval is going to fall into the whole yeah, yeah. oh non significant standards, and you're like, okay, because when you these are the inclusion criteria that you use to put together this meta analysis. I can see why you come to that, but let's do this. Let's just throw out everything that we know about physiology and come to create a meta analysis using a bunch of crappy studies to come. To, there's too many. Meta it's, it's just like this is this is a perfect opportunity for another one of your experiments. I mean, basically, just tell people, you know, do your biceps curls at the beginning of your next leg workout, and then do your biceps curls at the end of your next leg workout, and tell me whether you get a different number of reps in each case, because you will absolutely get fewer reps out on your biceps they curls. They already know the answer to this. <laughs> so that's why guys ask me this stupid question. They will say, if I do my shoulder press after I do my chest pressing, my shoulder press drops off but if i yeah, do but it that's, first, you're using you're using some of the I, same muscles the, the reason i picked a uh, bicep curl versus leg workout is because i'm trying to point out that there's a super spinal fatigue component <laughs> okay they can do legs and then do do chest there you go so do your bench press do your six rep max on bench press fresh after some warm-ups and then go do your full leg workout and then go to bench presses 
and tell me that CNS fatigue doesn't exist. You're working a totally different muscle group. <laughs> You're working a totally different muscle group. Exercise. But the thing is, is that you can just look at the, the volume tier studies. So if, if, if the volume with longer rest periods kind of caps off consistently, what I, I really like stuff that's repeatable and consistent. And it's almost always consistent around six sets and that falls in line with the Demos research where they looked at muscle damage too and, and different volume I think tiers. It was eight, wasn't it? It was eight to 12. Yeah. And then they yeah. saw there was no hypertrophy at 12, but there was a lot more muscle damage. There was a higher yeah. degree of my, myops yeah. expression, but there was no more hypertrophy. And they said, well, that's pretty easy. That just tells us those, those exercises just cause more muscle damage. Literally yeah. the definition of junk volume. Sure. So, um, but what I was saying about the exercise sequencing is, and that's, I did see you get beat up on that, not beat up this week, but you had a lot of people come at you saying <laughs> exercise sequence don't matter. And you're, I, I could see you going, what the fuck? I'm like, yeah, how does it not matter? How does it not matter? So fatigue no longer exists. Here's the thing, Chris. Now you can do 900 exercises and it doesn't matter. Different muscle groups. Just, you can all the way go down to, you know, uh, your wrist flexors. Yeah, it's like, You'd have literally have to dump all the fatigue physiology in the bin and not not pay any attention to it. And then secondly, you'd actually have to pay zero attention in your own workouts to reach that conclusion. It's like literally all you have to do is just go and do a biceps curl that you normally do that you know exactly how many reps you can get and then try and do that after your normal leg workout and tell me if you can get the same number of reps because you will not be able to get the same number of reps. You will not. I can tell you 34 years of doing this, you will not. That simple. These things are testable. You can test them exactly. on yourself rather than arguing with people on rather the internet. Than arguing you with can... people on the internet, yeah. <laughs> That's why I did my curls thing, right? I'm like, well, if you want to prove that it's definitely the highlight of the podcast season, as far as I'm concerned, is that is that experiment. It's brilliant. Yeah, I'm like, well, people were like, well, no, it's it's this or it's that. I'm like, no, it's just tolerable, maximal tolerable perception of effort. Here you go, test it on yourself. And then they did, and they're like, oh, okay, it's true. It's just maximal tolerable perception of effort. So if exercise sequence doesn't matter, as you said, then fine. Instead of arguing with people on the internet, do your leg extensions, your leg press, your hack squats, and then do your maximal set. Roll over to the preacher bench. Get over there and do your maximal set of six reps, or or do whatever, (laughs) load it up with whatever you normally get six to eight reps with, and see how many reps that you get. Right? I mean, that's exactly. pretty much where you're at. Yeah. So if exercise sequence doesn't matter, that means you could just continue on doing it. Like you could, you would just change muscle groups, right? So you could do six sets for, do six sets for legs, since that's people think these things work. So work. you could do your 11 or 12 exercises in every single workout um, for every single muscle group. And there would train full body three times a week or even every other day. Right. Forever. Yeah. And you wouldn't have any fatigue. <laughs> Except the guys in the last work, in the last study, they had they were showing signs of fatigue just doing legs twice a week. So they were, and then sometimes they were they were getting sometimes more than seventy two hours between sessions. That's pretty interesting. I found that pretty interesting because I've gone back multiple times to look at the muscle damage. I haven't read better. that study yet. I don't know what it says. I like when you're not interested in a study and later you are. It's not that I'm not interested. I am interested. I just haven't had time to read it since you sent it to me yesterday. The reason why I found it interesting (laughs) was because I've gone back multiple times to look at when they've done done testing. So when they've done like, uh, there's one study where they did something like 12 or 16 sets of chest work. And then they measured to see whenever their baseline strength levels come back. And for some people, it would take like seven days. Right before they got back to just their baseline level of isometric force. 
So the any of that muscle damage that exists is going to create that central nervous system fatigue. We talked about it's going to happen during your recruitment. So these guys were just doing leg work twice a week, and they weren't doing anything else. I, if there's one interesting thing I came out, came out of the study, that's the part that I found interesting, that everybody should look at it and go, aha, when it comes back, exercise sequence, fatigue exists, you know, the, the cap on on um, on a muscle in a session, the, the cap for your amount of volume in a week, the umbrella review that I sent you, they, they looked at, it was 1,400 people, and I can't remember how many meta-analysis they combined, and they said, we don't see anything when you combine this many meta-analysis that says anything more than 10 sets a week has a significant outcome. They said maximum. 10 sets a week, we don't see anything. There's Yes, there'll be an outlier here or there, but for the most part, over 1,400 people looking at every meta-analysis that they could find a quality inclusion of, they said probably around 10 sets a week is going to be maximum for pretty much 99% of the people. That's going to be where you're not getting anything extra over 10 sets a week. That falls right in line with all the research that says it was a right around six sets in a session I, for muscle. But I really think we need to move away from this idea of, of volume as being like something that, you know, this magic muscle map. Because, you know, you get these questions. I get these Every questions. Day. It's like, how many, how many sets of this should I do? And I'm like, I don't actually care how many sets you do. Because what really matters is motor unit recruitment and mechanical tension. So if you, if you manage to get a high level of recruitment and a high level of tension, and, you know, you're doing a couple of sets, that's, and that creates progressive overload, then great, you've just succeeded. Now, basically, that's why I think ultimately, you know, what we should be uh, targeting is as an increase in a particular rep max during strength training. I mean, that's what's going to drive the hypertrophy. And that's going to tell you whether it's happening or not. You know, just throwing a whole lot of extra junk volume on the end of that, once you've done that, is just making you more fatigued post-workout. Yeah, I... <laughs> I think that you hit it earlier. If there's a gem from this podcast somebody should take away is how would I approach training in the next three months if I wanted to increase my six rep max as much as possible? Yes, exactly. That's, that's, that's the secret to hypertrophy, really. I took, by doing something as simple as backing off my the number of failure sets I did, I took one of i took my eight rep maximated a warm-up set over a few months on this chest press machine that they have here so it was um i had been stuck it was three and a half plates on each side and i would normally it would be a four rep max now remember i pulled everything down to four reps so a four but it was I, there was no way i was getting a five and some days if i was tired i'd only get three it was pretty frustrating I was pretty frustrated. So I backed off to not doing that and doing sets of four or five reps with definitely one, at least one rep left in reserve. And it only took a few weeks and every, and it took a few weeks and it just started going up and up and up and up and up. And then I started backing off all of other stuff on my first set to one RIR just to see, and everything started moving back up. It, it's really been pretty incredible. To just stop hitting failure on every set and just shoot for a round. I, I really, from my, and this is a, it's not even a hard thing for, 
for me to admit because my whole life I've done a two failure. I've been a drop set guy, blah, blah, blah. If somebody tells me, hey, if you make this change, your progress is going to go up. I'm like, let me make that change. I am not one of those guys that has this. I have this emotional investment in an ideology. I'm like, what actually will help me move forward? progress wise i'm not going to grow anymore but i still love training i still love seeing progressive overload happen i still love all of that stuff so i still love to put that into effect for myself and then help other people with it so i was like well then i'll back off and let me see if anything happens because according to all the physiology chris and i go over and that i talk about every week i should be shooting more for a round you've only told me for three years you're like i think that one last rep i, I think that one just probably causes i think the it's well, like the first step with well, the first step was moving you to a more heavier load range. <laughs> I was, was the first already step. pretty heavy, but it was definitely I would keep a, a set in. I'll put it like this: my A rep max I did for fourteen reps last week. What used to be my A rep max on that machine was a fourteen rep max back off set. I I I probably could have done more. I actually stopped and I go, wow, that's incredible. All I did was back off and did more one RIR stuff. I think that but just to, just for clarity for people who are listening, one RIR is going to be perfect for this heavier load rep range, yes. this four to six, because um, ultimately what we can see is that calcium ion accumulation, which is what causes your post-workout fatigue, pretty much all of your post-workout fatigue, calcium ion accumulation happens right at the end of the set, but it's mm -hmm. dependent on rep range where it starts. So if we work with a heavy rep range like four to six, then generally it's only going to happen on the last rep. If you're working eight to ten, you can't just leave one rep in reserve and expect that to happen. It's not going to work like that. You're going to need two. I've, I remember for us to come back. One of my favorite studies. Somebody asked me about my three favorite studies last week in the Q and A, and the velocity loss at eight to twelve reps is one of my favorite yeah. ones. And when people try to argue with us that there's no difference happening in rep ranges, I'm just like, what? So the velocity loss study, the eight to reps shows you had a comment about this. I thought was was really genius. You doing 12 reps and you're still training two IR doesn't save you anything. So as you it's get into higher the same reps, as a six rep max to failure. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same, right? That's a really interesting thing. So I'm like, that's really true because by the time you get to 12 reps, even if it's two IR, you've already got the calcium ion accumulation. You've already got the central nervous system fatigue from the metabolite accumulation. You've already done all the bad stuff. Yep. So you, you, as you said, you might as well have just done six rep max without a, another rep in. So you have to figure out when you're talking about, this would be a whole different podcast. I find this particular, this discussion very interesting because of the practical applications for people. So if you, if you do a, a six rep max, that's what I had been doing, four or five, six reps. And all I did was shave a rep off. I'm like, I'm going to leave that one rep in the tank. Boom. I saw everything jump up a lot. So my first heavy set, and I've actually, I think. So you were in a fatigue plateau. Consistently. Yeah. And as soon as I bop, bop I, I knocked off that that one rep because I'm in the lower rep ranges, yeah. I saw the fatigue alleviate, and I saw progressive overload jump way up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it was wild as it started happening because when I went home back to Kansas City, I was stuck for a year and a half on this one machine. And I I'm pretty okay with being stuck at a plateau for a while if I like an exercise and it feels good and it gives me a goal to shoot forward. But I was stuck. I would have days where I could only get three, same thing, three reps, and I couldn't get a fourth. And it was always a fourth, but then on a really good day, maybe I could get four and a half reps. So I went home, and I've been doing all the – it's it's a machine. 
you know, good motion stable. So there's not a lot of neurological stuff I got to worry about coordination or adaptations. So I, I chunked the three plates on there that day because I did I did the one I did my normal warm ups and I remember on my last warm up set I was like wow I remember checking have you ever done this have you ever had a jump so big you check to see if you did a misload you're like did I put the right amount on there and I looked at it for a while and I was like that felt ridiculously easy and I had that like happen in my powerlifting days but I was on drugs so you don't ever know when it's just the drugs kicking in so anyway I chunked the three plates on there knocked off a set of six and had at least two RAR. So I was basically doubled what I was doing. And I remember, and I looked at the weight multiple times to go, did I miss, I'm looking at the three plates on each side that I was stuck at forever. So I was like, I'm going to do a second set and see what happens. Knocked off another set of six that wasn't a failure. I was blown away. So then the same thing here is I was stuck forever on this machine. That three, it was a three and a half plate. So it's a different machine, but similar motion. And all I did was like, I'm just going to back off my loading a little so that I have four or five reps at one RIR. And I jumped past the three and a half plates in just a few weeks. As you and I talked about this on the plateau thing right there, it's living is as soon as you figure out if there's a fatigue mechanism getting in the way of your performance and you remove that fatigue mechanism, the performance starts to climb again. It's everything. If there's anything that people get out of the stuff that you and I teach or post or whatever, I have consistently found for years now that the gym is figuring out how do I minimize fatigue and then your progress just starts to skyrocket. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's all about the stimulus fatigue ratio. Just nail that down and everything becomes relatively straightforward. But I think that everybody's eyeing the stimulus. Yes, and that's why the plateau um, kind exists. of thought process needs to needs to happen we need to go do i have a fatigue plateau do i have a stimulus plateau if i have a stimulus plateau what the do way I that we worded it and the one was uh, do i have a fatigue plateau or an adaptation plateau so if yeah. we have a, yeah, if we sure. have an adaptation, adaptation plateau, plateau yeah. that means we've yeah. kind of maxed out potentially whatever um either motor urine recruitment at that joint angle or perhaps the oxidation yeah, yeah, from the oxidation yeah. of those particular muscle fibers or that regional hypertrophy. So those are adaptation plateaus. But if I have a yeah. fatigue plateau, it's a programming issue. So I need to change something in my programming. Technically, you could say that for both. Technically, it's all programming. But yeah, yeah. So for, well, what I'm saying, saying is, is that I either I'm doing too much volume or I'm training to failure too much. And guys are obsessed with fail, failure now, hitting failure, going beyond failure, paleolithic, existential failure, every type of failure that they can do. And now when I look at that, I've had a shift. And I think it's cool to continue to have shifts in your mindset because it shows that you're open to growing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself some, I'm going to gas myself up a little bit. But you've told me this for three years, very subtly. You're like, you would just be like, eh, I think that last rep is, I just think, don't think that one's that great. <laughs> <laughs> and so for the longest time, that, that did go against my ingrained beliefs. And you would just be like, yeah, I think that last rep is just, I think it's out of whack. I think it's out of whack. And um, when the meta analysis came out on training to failure last year, you didn't even look at it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you didn't even look at it. And I'm like, did you see the graph, though? And you're like, no, I didn't really look at it. And I'm like, the graph has this cool little thing. And it's basically highlighting the last five reps. But on the last rep, it's a little downward spike. And I yeah, thought that's that was calcium related to fatigue reducing mechanical tension. Yes. And I thought that's exactly what you said this whole time. But it's just like in, you know, it's 
uh, color by paint by numbers. Paint by numbers. Yeah, paint by numbers. That's what I'm called. Paint by numbers form. I'm like, there's that reduction that you've talked about, and it's the little the the spike up happens on the the rep before, before failure. That. Yeah, yeah. And that's where you're you're probably if you're doing heavier loading where you that that last rep where you're really grinding it out and you're just having to do everything to get in there, just massive amounts of intracellular calcium getting done to the muscle at that point. I think it's exponentially greater than the other reps. I think it's exponentially greater. I yes, think there's I mean, more calcium more, accumulation definitely tracks bar speeds really, or durations of time is probably a better way of putting it. So the longer the duration of the rep, the more calcium accumulation you're going to get. And it's it definitely exponential in its effect. I think when you have one of those reps where you're grinding, 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 and it, it's, and you can watch it on, even on my sets where I go to task failure, that last rep is it just, it's, it's like it's twice as long to complete as the rep oh, yeah, before definitely. it, right? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Especially definitely. even depending on the lift, right? But it's it basically twice as slow. It's it's it's, it's two times slower than, than all the reps proceed. Sure, sure. So the amount of, I think the amount of calcium ion, intracellular calcium ion that gets dumped off into the cytoplasm on that last rep, I think it's just a, I think it's significantly more than the other reps. I've been asked before, do you think there's an uptick in the amount of mechanical tension or stimulus in those reps, like where you're close to failure. I think that now, you've only said this, I think for at least three to five years, I think that last rep is the least productive in terms of stimulus, fatigue to stimulus ratio, because of the fatigue that it probably causes peripherally and then adds on to as far as muscle damage goes. I think that's contextual. I think in the context that you're describing it, I probably would agree. So if you're doing a four to five rep max, mm-hmm. uh, or you're doing four reps to the five rep max, then yeah, I think probably if you added that last rep on, it would probably be the least stimulating out of all the reps you're doing. But if you're Definitely doing like contextual. a 12 rep max, Don't then matter. Uh, clearly the final rep is going to have some stimulus compared to say the early reps should be 12 rep max because they're not doing anything. Yeah, uh, um, you're right. So contextually here, I'm talking about in the way that I train. Yes, you If are. you're training in a four to six rep max range, I think that that rep to failure at four to six reps, infinitely worse than all the others. Yeah. Um, as far as stimulus to fatigue ratio, I think Correct. it's really yes. out of whack. Definitely, yes. If you are training yeah. to failure using a 12 to 15 reps, I think you need to probably go ahead and get to task failure because you've already accumulated the fatigue anyway. <laughs> and if you, <laughs> well, why are you even listening to us if that's what you're doing? I mean, I'm where I'm at now. I'm like, I'm so disconnected from that now. <laughs> so when I see that, I'm like, why? Are you, like, why are you even doing 15 reps anyway? Like, what are you? Are you training for endurance events or something? Like, I don't even know why you would do 15 reps of anything at this point. If your goal is hypertrophy, there's, I can't think of a single reason to do 15 reps ever. I, I can't. Even yeah. if you're going to do, people say, well, I want to spare my joints or whatever. So well, use machines then. <laughs> well, but even, but Chris, even if you did, if you said, I'm going to back off and go a little lighter, you could do eight reps and leave two RIR, and you're still within a decent Sure, range. absolutely. See what I'm yeah, saying? That, that would absolutely be my recommendation as well. If people aren't comfortable with the heavier load range for whatever reason, then eight reps with a 10 rep max is perfect. It's it's going to work just as well. Not well, not just as well, but it's going to be a good a good, a good good option. 
that yeah. that's generally my go-to when I tell when yeah, they're, they're like, well, yeah, I yeah. don't want to do the heavier loading because I've had previous injuries or whatever. Sure. And I'm like, well, if you pick a 10 rep max load, that's definitely not heavy. That's a, it, that falls on the high, uh, heavier end of the moderate loading zone and kind of on the, the floor end of the light loading zone. Light loading zone is kind of like 12 to 15 reps and anything above that. It depends on how you're doing. I like I like the one to five as heavy, six one to, to fifteen is, is moderate, and then sixteen plus is light. I, yeah. I I like that for physiological reasons, but I know other people have different definitions. Yeah, and I think what I'm getting at there is I don't consider ten rep maxes to fall into the heavy range. No, even though a lot of hypertrophy researchers will label it as heavy, which how would that fall nuts. into the heavy range? <laughs> Because they just say heavy versus light, so they'll use a ten rep max as heavy, and then they'll use light as twenty or something like that. Well, what's, honestly, honestly, so I mean, it's one on. to ten reps is heavy. Oh, come on, <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's pretty silly, really. But ultimately, they're just kind of saying one is heavier than the other, so we're going to say one is heavy, one is light. Okay, it's a comparative. I get, I get the concept, but ultimately, really, we should be calling it moderate. <laughs> Which I, I do just, when I make infographics. I relabel them as moderate loads. <laughs> I would say, I, okay, yeah, I would. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that as our last one. What are, what are, I get asked this a lot. So, what? That's a. What are heavy, moderate, and light loads? So you and I have the same one. I think it's one to five. I call, I call heavy loading. Well, the reason I the reason I use them is because um, one to five is going to give you max recruitment, so that's logical to have that as a separate batch of rep ranges because it's doing something physiological, dif physiologically different. If you then go from six to fifteen, what you'll find is that in that rep range, you can still create an increase in motor unit recruitment post workout if you train in that rep range to failure or with maximal efforts in that rep range. Um, that will work. That will work for that for the reason that you're actually still maxing out recruitment more or less by the time you hit the end of the sex. You need to max recruitment out to create an increase in recruitment. If you go 16 plus, you're not going to actually reach maximum central motor command because you've got afferent feedback, cardiovascular issues, um, you know, metabolite accumulation, that kind of thing. Right. And so I would then separate that off physiologically because it's doing something different. It's actually not allowing you to max recruitment out at the end of your set. And that's why you don't get the neural adaption. And then obviously, if you really want to, you could then differentiate light loads from very light loads, which is just where vascular occlusion stops happening, which is around about 30, 25 to 30% of one rep max, which is going to be around where it's going to differ massively between people, but it's going to be around the sort of 30 to 40 rep max. Zone. Yep. And I, I put that on my thread this week because when the, the Raphael, this new Raphael study came out, well, I think that that's what it is. If I'm saying it right. If I've said it wrong this whole time, I don't care. I haven't even looked at the, at the name. Okay. So Eric Campbell was involved in it too. So, so people were like, like, you're confusing me again now. And I said, this is what I put on threads. Heavier loading doesn't need failure the way moderate or light loads do for muscle growth. It's literally just motor unit recruitment. So we have full motor unit recruitment, a heavier loading, which is a five, met, five rep max or heavier. So every rep is stimulated. With moderate and lighter loads, it's a bit more important to get to task failure to get similar degrees of motor unit recruitment. It's quite simple. I don't think of any other way that I can I can put that. So if we're using a heavier load, as you said, if we're doing a one rep max, two rep max, three rep, four, five rep, all of those reps, we're going to have the maximum amount of motor unit recruitment that we're going to get for the yep. muscles that are involved. That's where we're going to maximum unit recruitment. It gets a slight murkier when we get above that. We get to an eight rep yeah, max. Yeah, six to 15, you're going to have to train closer to failure to hit maximum recruitment. But 
ultimately you should for anybody still who wants to argue that. that that's a gray area it's kind of not because we actually spent two weeks really going over that with a fine-tooth comb and anything kind of outside of six rep maxes we're not getting full motor unit recruitment there could be not on the early reps of the set you're not but you probably are going to hit it by the time you get to like the last couple of reps of the set yep. definitely and then the further away we definitely get from six reps the more important that it becomes in my opinion if you're trying to get the greatest amount of stimulating reps now when i say stimulating reps i'm talking about two principles here maximum amount of motor unit recruitment that we're going to get said two principles people are going to tune out after the first one they can't they people can't computate the two things existing at once i don't know how they deal with <laughs> reese's peanut butter cups um <laughs> so when you get further out from six or seven reps especially eight plus especially eight plus um that and the reason why i say eight plus is because as we put through all the research nowhere in the research does it show anybody except untrained elderly people are getting any stimulation from anything significant hypertrophy is yeah. not happening in rep ranges above that point no you might find an effect size that you can wave around and tell people that's important oh gonna are we going to move the significant... move the needle now and you're not going to find any significance that... are we going to change it now we're going to move the needle and say <laughs> it's about effect sizes I always find it funny when we absolutely slaughter somebody's take that's trying to kind of, you know, criticize us and then they completely change what they're going to base it all off of now. But anyway, that's a different topic. Because um, now it's about effect sizes, right, Chris? It's not oh, really about the simulating reps sizes. model. It's about effect sizes. So now we just take the studies and we look at effect sizes and then we base it off that. So when people ask for heavier, um, heavier, moderate, and lighter loading, one to five is what I do. I call that heavier too. Um, and then six to 15, I would, I would say, I think that's a little bit of splitting hairs, but I think that's on my own personal anecdote to me, six to 12, it's like six to 12 is moderate and anything above 12 is lighter. Um, if you want to, and see, what are your criteria for that? Because my criteria are physiological thresholds. Um, Yours is literally threshold physiological like, threshold. What changes? If nothing changed, if if like we went from heavy to moderate and nothing changed from like six rep max right the way up to 30 or 40 when you hit, you know, the lack of vascular occlusion, then I would basically say, well, why are we differentiating between light to moderate? There's no, there's no reason to differentiate with them. But there is a reason, which is the point at which you actually stop stimulating gains in motor unit recruitment post-workout as an adaption, which happens around about the 15 rep max mark. So that's literally all the, all the reason why I would put a, a marker in the sun there. Yeah. So either way, the kind of what we're getting at is that we're talking about is, as it always, motor unit recruitment, we have full motor unit recruitment at one to five reps, every rep. So I call every rep stimulating. And yeah. that's why I just say four to five reps, people say, well, why not four or why five? Because they've gotten hung up on the fact that they think that the simulating reps model is five, the last five reps. And I'm like, we just... Because that's one concept. That's one concept. So immediately if I say, well, if fatigue exists, then it's not the last five reps. Do you understand like what we're getting at here? So the if you look across all of the emg research when it looks at activation we were supposed to do today on emg but you didn't want to do emg but if you look at the emg research when they when they kind of use that to measure action potentials which gives us an idea of motor unit recruitment it's always at around somewhere about 85 to 88 percent loading where we see it kind of the action potentials get capped off and that's kind of an, an indicator of uh <laughs> of um motor unit recruitment and um 
And then also, when training to failure, regardless of load, when they look at EMG, it's somewhere around four or five reps where they kind of see a point of diminishing returns for for action potentials as well. So that kind of gives you a, a clear, uh, using a different piece of technology, an idea that, hey, this is kind of where we're getting um, maximal motor unit recruitment. So if we're using heavier loading, it's all there from one to five reps, if that's the loading range. And that's what I was getting to. That's why I found that a four reps with a five rep max has been about my sweet spot to cause a lot of progressive overload. Um, and then if you get above that, as you said, you're starting to talk about some different physiological mechanisms that are going to be occurring for you to get to that same degree of maximum loading and recruitment. So if you're taking a set of 12 to 15, if that's what you're going to be doing, why you'd be doing that, I don't know. But let's just say that you are then it just becomes more important to get that, if you're going to get that same degree of motor unit recruitment that you're getting at those one to five rep max loads that you get close, pretty much at, you're going to have to get to task failure. At those. And that has played out in pretty much all of the, the research when they've looked at failure to non-failure is that the loading is a huge part that I think that they do sometimes leave out. It's like, it's very important for us to consider the loading yeah, I mean, ultimately, repetition range and proximity to failure will, will actually interact with each other. So, you know, from both a fatigue point of view and a stimulus point of view. So ideally, we want uh, heavier loading to avoid the fatigue and get all the stimulus. Um, and then we can just maybe leave, as you say, one rep in reserve. And we're getting a long way away from fatigue problems that we're likely to have post-workout. Yep. All right, I think that's going to wrap us up for the day. We're right at right at two, um, and I don't like to go like too much longer than this. And that was our first ever kind of done on the Q and A. And what I'm what I did was is I was able to yeah. So if you've got to this point and you would like to um, you know have a question in a future podcast that we do, please do make sure that you. Um, Go and ask Paul some good questions in his next Q and A's that he does on Instagram. You know what's not a good question? How many sets per week should I do for chess? <laughs> he said that. that wasn't even rehearsed. I swear to God. <laughs> I I already know because I know what you complain about. <laughs> oh. Oh, I can't believe it. Literally in my head, that was what I was going to say. That's, but that's not a good question, Chris. No, How many, it's not. It's not. I mean, just give me some support and backup here. When I say <laughs> there's good questions, there's not good questions. And not a good question is how many sets I should do for a muscle group in a week. That's not a good question. What training split should I use? What training? That was the second one. I was going to say <laughs> there's going to be two. What is a, is a PPL better than... An upper lower. <laughs> People always think Joe Bennett is nicer than I am. And how Joe gets away with it, I don't know. He's way more snarky and uh, critical than I am. But everybody's like, Joe Bennett is so nice. I'm like, Joe throws out more shade than I even come. I can't even. He, he posted up. Um, that one of the squat machines and literally uh, photoshopped a broccoli head, a bro broccoli over a kid's head. And I'm like, oh, Joe gets away with all this, but everybody thinks he's so nice. and Everybody thinks I'm an a-hole. And I'm like, and I would never do that. And I think Joe's funny. So I don't like mind it, but I mean, I would never do that. And, and 
but I, I, Joe says the same thing. He calls it weak people questions. That's the reason I brought it because he calls it weak people questions. He said, I call it weak people questions because it's always the things that people are focused on that doesn't really serve them and they consistently stay weak. And they ask all these questions like, is a, is a PPL better than an upper lower? Is, you know, is six sets for chest a week better than four sets for chest? Is, is one hour. Just replace all the answers to everything is going to be what's the method that's going to get you to a bigger six rep max in the exercises you're doing as fast as possible, because that's basically the answer to everything. It's a pretty interesting, right? If you get back to performance, performance will will get you to the end goal. But I think people are focused on the end goal and then focused on the wrong things to get you to the end. Well, it's ultimately, it's like a lot of self-development literature says, in, if you want to achieve a goal, try and find a habit that will get you to that goal. Right. That's well, what I'm trying to get at. That's, 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 your habit should be trying to get your six rep max as high as possible because that is what will get you to the hypertrophy goal that you're trying to reach, really. More than I'm any, gonna, gonna... any magic muscle math that you might care to you know, kind of ask your favorite influencer about and they tell you that X number of sets per week is the magical answer to your problem. The reality is that improving your six rep max is the magical answer to your problem. So I, I put that in the notes. I'm going to put that the last one part of the, of the podcast is the answer to magical muscle math revealed. Okay. <laughs> right? That's pre, it's pretty Yeah, that's true. Up. Actually, that, The magic muscle math answer is basically... It's you know, basically, is this going to get me to my six rep max as fast as possible? Is, it, is this going to get me to a new yeah, six rep max? The fastest way to increase your six rep max is, the, is whatever that... Whatever the answer to that is, is the answer you're looking for. I love that. That's really, that's really great. We've had, we've had some gems over a lot of these organic ones. We've just kind of done, done the, um, the one that I've still continue to get feedback on literally it's almost the plateaus daily, one. the plateaus. Yeah. And I've had so yeah. much feedback that they're like, that's the best thing. And that other people have gone and been able to implement that stuff into their training and see results right away, which is what I've, I've done too. And that was completely organic. Well, so let's just do one on plateaus, and we didn't talk about anything ahead of time. We just went in and did it. And I think there's a lot of a lot of good gems in this one today too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put that one in the description that we actually reveal the secret to the, magic the muscle magical math. muscle math answer revealed. All right, uh, that's our wrap up for today, Chris. I enjoyed this one. I like when we do these organic ones; they're pretty fun, and we can just kind of kind of free ball it a little bit it's definitely better than spending two weeks looking through training to failure literature <laughs> i will i will say this that i'm glad that we did that but that was kind of a i'm not gonna do it again never do it again i feel like that we've i feel like this i feel like after that one i don't really feel the need to go back through and, and get that deep into the literature again because you, i'll tell you this nobody else is doing it nobody else is doing it they're just coming up with this bullshit and then they just use it as kind of a platform to like attack anything that we say. And then they're not actually looking at the literature. And I realized that when we started looking at it, and I'm like, they're out there spouting this bullshit off and they have never opened up any of these studies. They have never. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we really have to figure one, out to get to you, some of those studies. Day one right? I sent to you, I said, they're bringing this up and have you actually looked at this? And you're like, no, I'm like, the only study that shows eight RIRs on untrained elderly. 
And then we spent two weeks looking at all that stuff and breaking it down. And ultimately it ended up being that the average over the course of your life is about five reps to like the last five reps to failure is about the average. And I don't want to say that because somebody will keep, keep quoting that the stimulating reps model is the last five reps. It's just that that's when those, those two principles seem to collide the greatest in a non-fatigued state. So that, that's yeah. Prior prior to doing that set for the first time, when you do more sets, with around five. when you do more sets, clearly you just posted that one the other day. It's like it just takes a couple of sets for about twenty percent of motor unit reduction to occur. So, so you're, you're not going to be getting. So you're not getting five. And I said that in that one. I was like, because somebody's like, well, you said five reps. I'm like, I did not say. I said five. Cool. <laughs> I said, if you, in fact, if you go to my pin post, which is actually quite old now, it still says if you look at motor unit recruitment and force velocity relationship, you got about five reps in there. And I talk about fatigue and we covered, I said, the stimulating reps model, if you understand it fully, it already includes fatigue. That's part of the simulating reps model. It includes fatigue. We include fatigue in there. We say, well, if fatigue exists, then you're not going to get five. It's the only model that includes it. Yeah, we say, well, if fatigue exists, it's not going to be five. So that's kind of the overarching thing. Anyway, I felt like this was a good one. Um, I, the next time this is what I'll do is I'll put in my Q&A. This is going to be for the podcast Q&A. So make them good. A good question is not how many sets for chess for pecs a week. Um, or a, a good one is not. Anybody listening to this? A good one is also not. If you do six sets for chest, does that mean it's two sets for upper chest, two sets for for middle chest, two sets for outer chest, two sets for inner chest, two sets for lower chest? How are you splitting up your six to eight sets for chest a week? This, those those are not good. Those yeah, are weak. Stop questions. asking volume questions. Stop <clears throat> asking questions about volume. Does one one two? I think I actually did answer the one. Somebody asked me today. Here's the thing. We'll close out on this one. It was the if you do six reps to failure, is it more fatiguing than do? Oh, how do they put it? What would be more fatiguing? Two sets of four, one RIR, or one set of five to failure? One set to five to failure would be my guess. That's actually a really good question. I actually thought it was, I had to look at that one for a while. If you did two sets of four, one RIR, or you did With one, four or five minutes rest between the two, definitely it would be the five rep max. There would be the five rep max. Yeah. But if you started cutting down on your rest periods, then it starts to get a little bit messy. It gets messy. Sometimes yeah. when people ask these, I don't think they, they understand how nuanced that we have to kind of get in their head. But if you did a five rep max to failure, can't get a six rep, would that be more fatiguing than doing two sets at four reps or, or two sets, four reps, one RIR with three to four set, uh, rest between. Yeah, i definitely say that the five rep max would be more fatiguing. I think that the five rep max would be more fatiguing. Certainly post-workout fatigue would be greater. Whether the fatigue immediately after the here's two the, sets would be different. Here's the it. one thing. Here's a better way to look at that, to answer the question. If you were going to have to do a second set, then the five rep max to failure would 100% be more fatiguing if you're including that second set. Do you following me? So if you do one set to failure at a five rep max, or you do two sets of, a, of four reps with one RAR, so you're using the same load in both 
both scenarios, right? You're using a five rep max. So in one scenario, you're going to do four reps with one rep left in reserve. Then you do a second set. Let's say you can get four reps with one rep left in reserve in some kind of weird, bizarre world. Um, is that more fatiguing than doing the one set of five to failure? And what I would say is if you're going to be basing the outcomes off this, the second set that would potentially be done, do you see where I'm going with that now? Then the five rep max would be more fatiguing. If you're looking at what's going to cause more post-workout fatigue, any of those sets to failure will be the five rep max that will cause yeah. more more yeah, post definitely. more definitely. workout uh, fatigue in the workout, um, and then more more uh, more fatiguing. And- yeah, I mean you're not getting calcium accumulation really in your in your sets of four with one rep in reserve. It's just not going to happen. I, I think that we kind of nailed that home. Is, is that um that even in heavier loadings, that last rep to failure, if you take go ahead and taking that last rep, that one, the amount of the fatigue just outweighs any, any good you're getting out of. But if you're doing higher reps, if you're, if you're wanting that full amount of motor unit recruitment, you're already... Well, as you said earlier, you're already done anyway. You're already <laughs> getting the fatigue anyway. Might as well get the stimulus too. <laughs> Okay. All right. That's our wrap up. Chris, as always, thanks for being here with me, buddy. Just just as on the air, even though we talk about this in private, we're going to Rome to some point this year, right? Hopefully, yeah. Anybody that's listening, if you have a gym over in Rome and you want to host us for a day or something, potentially open we to that, could do that. Yeah, we could okay. do that. We so could definitely any, go and train now, though. <laughs> we would definitely come and train at your facility, and people could ask us a bunch of questions. But if anybody has a facility, you you had to move it out because we were going to go this summer, but we're probably going to go more like September now. Yeah, it's probably going to be more like September. I've got things to do. Okay, anybody that listens and is in the Rome kind of area and wants to host us for a day, um, please get a hold of us, and we'll be open to doing that, especially sometime in the September months. So with that said, I'm going to wrap it up. Chris, as always, thanks for being here with me, buddy. I had a good time. 